but Samurai tags Yasuda, who hits a great stalling suplex, his weird grazing big boot, and sumo slaps, then tags Samurai for a hying hit for, for a hying, hying, hying fed foot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I found my show intro. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days and not-so-good old days of World Championship Wrestling, series by series. I'm your host, Robert, the Earl of Moore, and I'm joined by filthy peasant Alec Bridgen. Your highness, (laughs) I guess? How's it going tonight? Good. How's it going with you? It's going good. It's going good. We are uh, doing our bridge episode Mm -hmm. now between our... Was that our third and our fourth series now? Yes. That, it just it keeps catching me by surprise how much we've managed to do on this show yeah. so far. I'm, I'm pretty proud of that. I guess the figure is you're going to build a bridge but through North Korea. <laughs> That's the best way to do it. That seems perhaps ill-advised, but we'll see how it goes for us. <laughs> Too late now. As, as Al just alluded to, tonight we're taking a look at Collision in Korea, otherwise known as the Pyongyang International Sports and Culture Festival for Peace. But presumably the WCW marketing team took one look at that title and said, yeah, we need something a bit snappier. Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> Collision in Korea was held on April 28th and 29th, 1995, at the May Day Stadium in Pyongyang, North Korea, in front of a claimed crowd of 165,000 on the first day and 190,000 on the second, though Eric Bischoff claims it was more like 170,000 on the first day and 180,000 on the second, and wrestling journalist Dave Meltzer notes it was probably actually more like 150,000 on the first day and 165,000 on the second. If you thought the accounting for WrestleMania 3 was bad, <laughs> yes. Enjoy. If the 190,000 for day two held true, it would be the record attendance for an indoor pro wrestling event, and the 165,000 for day one would actually be second place. Mm-hmm. Presumably, that means even if Meltzer's numbers are the real ones, the 165,000 for day two is still the indoor attendance record for a pro wrestling event, since the only higher number was the probably fictional 190,000. Mm-hmm. So it's an impressive accomplishment albeit one made significantly less impressive when you take into account the fact that most of the fans Wink. were likely ordered to be there. Yes. The original show featured 15 matches, with 7 on the first day and 8 on the second. WCW did not actually air the show live for American fans, though. Instead, they created a pay-per-view version, which aired August 4th, 1995, several months later, with commentary added in by Eric Bischoff, Mike Tanay, and Kazuo Ishikawa, better known to us as Sonny Ono. Yes. That's the version that we're going to be watching. It was actually posted to YouTube by Eric Bischoff's 83 Weeks podcast, and we'll put the link to that release in our episode description, assuming I don't forget. Yes. (laughs) The pay-per-view version featured only eight matches, a mix of matches from days one and two, I'm admittedly glad to not have to watch another 15-match show. (laughs) 
But it is a bit of a bummer that one of the matches that got cut featured Starcade 1995 favorite Shinjiro Otani. Mm-hmm. Understandable, though, as it's actually only about two and a half minutes and ends in a referee stoppage due to what sounds like it might have been a legitimate injury. Yeah. This is a really strange show, as you might guess. WCW and New Japan teaming up to do a cross-promotional show in North Korea, of all places. Right. That begs the question, how the heck did that happen? (laughs) Well, it all started with Antonio Inoki, New Japan wrestling legend, and then member of the House of Counselors of the Japanese Diet, the upper house of Japan's legislature. Mm -hmm. According to Eric Bischoff on his podcast, 83 Weeks, Inoki contacted him about a year prior to this show just to get in touch with Muhammad Ali, who Inoki had famously had a boxing versus wrestling match with back in 1976. Which went smoothly. (laughs) They just met up again at that point to get reacquainted. Later, Inoki contacted Bischoff again to see if he would be able to recruit Ali and WCW wrestlers to participate in a tour of shows in Japan and North Korea. Now, why did Inoki want to do this? Well, Inoki's political career was in trouble, as his reputation had been damaged by a number of scandals, including, according to what culture, embezzlement allegations from a prior secretary and manager, and according to Bischoff on 83 Weeks, indirect connections to illegal arms trading. Oh. He saw a grand outreach and diplomatic gesture to North Korea as a way to revive his flagging political career. Notably, this was not the first time that he'd done such a thing. Back in 1990, he'd gone to Iraq to negotiate with Saddam Hussein for the release of 41 captive Japanese citizens, and organized a wrestling show in Iraq that December as part of his diplomatic efforts there, succeeding in getting 36 of the 41 freed. Though the Japanese wiki page for the event mentions him getting 36 Japanese hostages and 5 Japanese residents freed, which would add up to 41, so I'm admittedly a little bit unclear on the precise results. Sadly, WCW didn't run that show as well. <laughs> yeah. Interview an Iraqi review. In any case, Inoki had been re-elected in 1992, so he saw wrestling diplomacy as a boon to his political prospects. As far as Bischoff's interest, he says on 83 Weeks that he saw it as a way to get WCW some publicity, and that he was actually a little surprised by how little attention it got at the time. He was excited at the chance, and he didn't even think of the fact that Americans were prohibited from going to North Korea. Yeah. (laughs) Which seems like a bit of a thing to overlook. A A bit, yeah. He expected that others would be excited as well, so he was surprised when he got quite a bit of pushback, including, notably, Hulk Hogan, who Bischoff describes as listening, stroking his mustache, and saying, Nah, sorry, can't make that one, brother. (laughs) (laughs) Bischoff notes that Inoki had really wanted Hogan, but Hogan had zero interest in going to North Korea. Yeah, it is notable that Inoki and Hogan have a long history of wrestling together. Yes, yeah. Technically, depending on how you look at it, Hogan is actually the first IWGP champion. They were in this little tournament thing, which he he actually did beat Inoki in the finals. So, generally, he was champion there. But then they made it a yearly event, and he just never came back. Ah, okay. So, it's like, I don't know if he really counts as champion or not. Yeah. That's... According to him, he does. If you ask him, <laughs> he will add that IWGP number to his his tally. Okay. So, it's, it's understandable why they would want it. He'd want yeah, it. absolutely. So, uh, you won't hear me say this too often, but I am 100% with Hulk Hogan on this one. Yeah, it's a, it's a rare, rare statement, yeah. <laughs> Bischoff says they didn't tell anyone, or even seek advance permission from the State Department, perhaps knowing that they would have said no. Right. 
Bischoff says his mindset at the time was that if he got into trouble with the State Department when he got back, it'd get WCW even more publicity, and he was pretty sure that once he was done with the consequences from the U.S. government, Ted Turner would just give him a slap on the wrist. He admits, though, that he should have asked permission. Yeah, I mean, it's great publicity if you're third in federal prison. (laughs) He does actually say he checked in with some people at CNN and checked if they thought he was likely to end up in jail. Oh, okay. Which he says would have caused him to reconsider, but he was told that level of consequence was unlikely. Oh, okay. Admittedly, North Korean prison, maybe a little more likely, but he wasn't thinking that side of things. Yeah, I think it probably depends on what you're planning to do there. Yeah. If you're planning to go there and go, this is so great, I don't know why why people don't move here, that would probably be bad. Yeah. Bischoff mentions that he got Ric Flair to agree to come relatively quickly in his recollection, but that Flair, though he never said he might not come after all, ended up clearly worried about the trip in the lead-up to it. Bischoff goes on to tell the tale of their landing on his podcast, and it definitely sounds unnerving at best. Mm -hmm. Per Bischoff, they flew over on a North Korean military transport, and on the approach, he saw the landscape, and he calls it desolate, questioning how it could even support life. Mm. He says it looked like the landscape of Mars. Wow. I've never seen so much nothing in my entire life, he says. Upon landing, the whole party was split into pairs. Bischoff was paired with Sonny Ono. Their passports were taken and they were each assigned a North Korean interpreter who was actually a member of the secret police Mm -hmm. to watch their every move and, quote Bischoff, to brainwash them. (laughs) He notes that his guard told him that he was only the seventh American to enter North Korea without being shot down or captured. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Bit of an awkward, awkward moment. (laughs) Yeah. Bischoff does note that most of what the North Koreans told him was unlikely to be even remotely true, including potentially that fact. True, yeah. He describes the atmosphere of government control in the country as overwhelming. I bet, yeah. In what has to be a rarity, Bischoff calls his own decision to participate and go to North Korea stupid, and says if he got the chance to do it over again, he would not go. He says that, in part due to his refusal to contact the State Department before going, he didn't fully understand at the time just what the trip would be like, or how it would be used by the North Korean government for propaganda. Mm -hmm. More on that later. So, that's how this event came to be. But, how was it as a wrestling show? To find out, let's go to the ring. All right. Bischoff's version of the show starts with the lead-in, featuring the characters from anime series Carrero Gunso, or Sergeant Frog, which proclaims in crappy basic subtitles that this is EP Network. I tried looking up EP Network and came up with everything from a site that podcasts about air rescue operations to a logistics support company to a Christian nonprofit healthcare mission. I'm pretty sure none of those were involved in getting this on YouTube, so I'm not actually sure what EP Network is. (laughs) Yeah. Rick Flair. And Tony Oinoki, two of the greatest international superstars in a worldwide wrestling extravaganza. For the first time ever on pay-per-view, it's a spectacular one-time global event. Collision in Korea. Our actual show opening features a video package highlighting Ric Flair and Antonio Inoki, backed by shots of North Korean performers from the opening ceremonies that we'll be getting clips of throughout this evening. We get a weird sudden shift from electric guitar music to choir music in the middle, too. (laughs) I do like the intro bit with Flair and Inoki both shown in front of their respective nation's flags. It helped give this about as much gravitas as you were likely to get in, like, 25 seconds. Yeah, fair enough. (laughs) 
host Eric Bischoff, wearing terrific dad glasses, yes. welcomes us to the show, introducing co-hosts Mike Tanay and Kazuo Ishikawa. They stand in front of a big Collision in Korea logo over an American flag. It looks green screened in. Oh, it is, 100%. Because I, I think the flag actually does like blow a little bit, too. Mm. Yeah. I'm making making hand gestures again for the benefit of the audience that can't see me at all. <laughs> <laughs> Tanay builds up the diverse wrestling styles that we're going to be watching and the Inoki Flair match and asks Ishikawa about the, quote, international intrigue behind the event. Ishikawa says we have Americans and Japanese in North Korea and it's wrestling diplomacy at its best. Bischoff brings up the presence of Muhammad Ali and says it's an exciting event. He throws to the first match, talking as though he's actually hosting the show live, which he's not. Mm -hmm. The commentators switch on that a few times over the course of the show and never quite seem to solidly decide whether they're pretending to be live commentary or being open about doing this months later. It gets really bad towards mm -hmm. the end. By the end, they just play in these act talk about, well, I'll tell you what happens later. Yeah, it just feels so strange. Yeah. Pick, pick your tents, man. Pick your tents. Yeah. So our first match is Flying Scorpio, otherwise known as Too Cold Scorpio, versus Wild Pegasus, Chris Benoit. The referee for this one is, I believe, Masao Tayama. The other referee that we'll have tonight, Masao Hattori, is identified by name on the show occasionally, but this one never actually is. Right. Well, Wikipedia lists two referees for it, so I'm assuming that this guy's the other one. Right. <laughs> so if I'm wrong with this guy's name, I apologize. Because the other guy we've had before, I believe, correct? I believe we have. I'm not one, one of the early Starcades had him on. That sounds right. It might have been the international tag team tournament one. Yeah, it might be. Yeah. And this match from the actual show is actually day two, match four. Yeah, it's kind of a weird place to start. Other than yeah, a little bit, they didn't start with either of the opening matches for either of the nights. <laughs> There's a lot of wrestlers that over the years have done shoot interviews, and you know they talk about the stories. More recently, there's tension brought to the show from the show Dark Side of the Ring on Vice. So a lot of what I have here was told through there, not necessarily for the first time, but definitely to a major audience for the first time. The guy who really said that a lot, bearing in mind that a bunch of people involved in the show are unfortunately dead, so they can't tell their side of the story, is you have Tuchel Scorpio. Not to disparage the man too much, but it felt like watching that show... He decided to make the entire thing about him. Oh, uh, okay. Because he spends a lot of time talking about how great he is and this and that. And it's like, <laughs> I feel like I'm not watching this show for you as much as everything else, but thanks. <laughs> Essentially, what he tells the story that happened at some point while they're being bussed around from side to side as part of these PR events, he had said something mean about Ric Flair. And Flair and Robert Hawk were on the trip together, were paired off together that way. Okay. So at some point, according to him, and not really validated by anyone else that is there to tell us, a fight broke out in the bus between the two of them over things he said about Flair. Just weird picturing Roder Hawk standing up for Flair, given the times we've seen him like fighting Flair and you know, not yeah, a, like, a little bit. They side, you know, in character, out of characters. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so if you believe him, there was a fight and it went 100% in his favor. So again, bear in mind the source of the information. It could have happened that way or it could not happen that way. Yeah. According to him, later in the same tour, he was walking through the hallway and Robert Hawk attacked him from behind. Again, to the source. And it escalated to the point where he apparently, so what he says, this is not someone saying this about him, so bear that in mind. He talks about he was planning to kill Robert Hawk while on the trip. Holy crap. He recorded that this year, talking about it. So he's had 
20 plus years to think about this. Like he really is stuck on this story. He claims that he was planning to make a shiv and he was going to find some way during the tour to kill him either there or maybe when they got back to Japan. Not that it would be better whichever way she did it at. Yeah. He claims he was talked out of doing that by his roommate, which for the trip was Chris Benoit. Okay. So, yeah. Bearing that all that in mind, now watch the two of them wrestling each other. Yeah. Okay. That's... I think that's one of those stories that I would have been happy not to know. <laughs> yeah. And he was really proud of it, so it's such a yeah. story to tell, so I feel okay telling it. He, yeah, yeah. He went national TV and bragged about it, so it's fair game, I think. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, no matter how much of that story is true, assuming, like, any small portion of it is, the yeah. idea that the two of them were like, we're going to get into a fight in North Korea. Yes. <laughs> that seems like not a great idea, like, <laughs> in any respect. The only person that really talks about otherwise is Scott Norton, who's also featured in the program. He doesn't necessarily dispute or um, validate any information. He does mention that Roy Rahawk at this point was on but some medication for some sort of kidney issue. Mm. So if they really had a, had a fight, if it even happened, it's not like he's fighting Hawk at his best anyways. Right, yeah. And he sort of dismisses it as saying, well, yeah, if this hadn't been happening, it would have gone a lot differently. So... <laughs> Okay. I feel like I'm listening to a soap opera here. Uh, a little bit, yeah. Bischoff calls the North Korean fans polite and notes that they haven't seen a lot of pro wrestling. Scorpio is out first, taking his life in his hands by wearing American flag pants in North Korea. Yeah, well, that's diplomacy for you. Yeah. The ring announcer, who I believe I read is Hidekazu Tanaka from New Japan Pro Wrestling, Nicely claps along with Scorpio as he dances to his music. Oh, that's nice. Tanaka even seems to almost decide to do some of the dance himself before thinking better of it and stopping. Mm. He's wearing what I can only describe as a marching band drum major's uniform. Oh, that's what you're talking about. Yeah. Yes. All the show, he's dressed like that, yes. Yeah. You can actually tell the difference between the knights based on the color oh, of his yeah, outfit. That's true, yeah, yeah. On night one, he's wearing uh, blue, yeah. and on night two, he's wearing white. But it's, in both cases, this like, weird drum major uniform. Yeah, because this one, he's wearing the white one, because it's night two. Yeah, you're right. Benoit comes out next, and he just kind of runs down to the ring. He gets some flowers midway down the entrance ramp, and when he's almost to the ring, a lady runs out from the crowd and along behind him, then delivers some flowers to Scorpio. I'm guessing, I don't know, Scorpio danced by too fast or something to pick him up. It's very possible. <laughs> Today builds up Scorpio and Benoit both being trained in the New Japan or organization. Acrobatic counter-wrestling to start, and Scorpio gets the better of Benoit, who backs into the corner and holds up his hands toward Scorpio off. Bischoff argues with a mostly inaudible Ishikawa about the merits and athleticism of Japanese and American wrestlers. Benoit wins a test of strength, but Scorpio blocks knee drops and monkey flips Benoit, and they rapidly roll back and forth, trading pin attempts, getting mostly two counts. Tanay brings up Scorpio and Benoit appearing on an earlier show, When Worlds Collide, as tag partners. That's true. That show was a joint promotion between the AAA and IWC wrestling companies, but it was produced by WCW, and Tanay probably especially wanted to promote it as it was his first time ever on commentary. Oh, okay. <laughs> Scorpio stuns Benoit with some strikes, then hits a moonsault to a daze Benoit for two. On a Scorpio superkick, Ishikawa seems to say something about Scorpio knowing more about martial arts than Benoit, because Benoit's Canadian. I mean, that all tracks. <laughs> sure. 
they don't seem to have really given Ishikawa his own working microphone, so he's barely audible for most of the show. Yeah, it's kind of like if you're in a like on a car trip, and there's the you know the husband and wife in the front seat, and the kid is like popping up and talking with the back seat. Right, that's yeah. kind of what it's like. Because occasionally it'll pop in, and you'll hear a voice that's not quite as strong, but it's further away. It's like if Tanay and Bischoff are both sitting there with their own mics, and Ishikawa is sitting between them, but doesn't have his own microphone, and is just like leaning closer mm-hmm. to one of them or the other to talk at certain points. It might just be that the guy kind of speaks quietly, but it really sounds like there's a problem with whatever microphone they tried to give him. Yeah, it could be. Benoit dodges a Scorpio splash, whips him to the ropes, and hits a knee strike. And Bischoff tries to claim that Scorpio was coming off the ropes at 30 miles per hour. Benoit wears Scorpio down with a suplex drop on the ropes, drop kick, and strikes, but Scorpio floats over a suplex and sidekicks him. But Benoit reverses a tombstone pile driver into one of his own and hits his top rope swan dive headbutt to Scorpio's bicep. Yeah. K- kind of weird aim there. Bischoff calls it Air Benoit which is about the only name they could have given it that's worse than what they call it later, Air Canada. (laughs) It gets Benoit the three count and the win. The referee raises Benoit's hand in victory, and Benoit walks off with his flowers as the ref wakes up Scorpio. We get replays of the tombstone reversal and the swan dive headbutt. Thoughts on this one? Given that it's not the actual opener of this show, I thought it was at least a good choice as far as match quality for Mm -hmm. the show opener. We talked about before, we like having... The stronger, faster match, quicker matches, open shows. So it sets a nice pace and sort of gets the audience ready for what hopefully you'll get the rest of the night yeah. to some degree. Technically, it was done really well. They did the Lucha spot with the uh, press down and monkey flip over and pen mm-hmm. stuff. I know their history with the company is still kind of funny that it's Benoit Scorpio, again, a Canadian-American, doing the famous Lucha spot. We flip over. Like <laughs> that, that. that is true, yeah. My other gripe would be maybe it's a bit too short. Mm-hmm. It kind of gets going, and then they just go, oh, here's a finish now, and we're done. Yeah, I I think I'm in total agreement on that. I found it a perfectly good opening match, even if that's not what it actually was. Yes. It served its purpose on the pay-per-view version. It had a quick pace and good, solid action. Crisp moves, well-performed, and there were some really nice reversals, all very smoothly done. It is a short match, I agree on that, but they do get a good mix of action in there. My only complaint, I think the same as you, is that the finish feels a bit sudden. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, a tombstone pile driver and a swan dive headbutt are both match enders. Mm-hmm. But it just feels like they come up out of nowhere where both guys were going strong moments ago. Right. It does give it a shock ending, which can be beneficial, but maybe it's just too much of a shock. Yeah, I can see that. Still, it was a fun match. Yeah, I think so. So, the year before this, there was a tournament to declare the new NWA world champion. Back in 1994, Tuko Scorpio and Benoit were both in it along with much other wrestlers. In the tournament, Scorpio actually beat Benoit, making semifinals where he would lose to Shane Douglas. Oh, okay. Shane Douglas would, of course, famously throw the belt down and swear and talk about ECW as the world champion. All right. So, Scorpio could have stopped that if he had just done better that night. Yeah, come on, Scorpio. <laughs> you let the enemy way down, man. <laughs> uh, as far as Scorpio and the NWA, or WCW. It is his last appearance on any WCW events. Technically, he didn't officially appear on this one either, because it's a weird joint show anyways. But he had been released from the company earlier in 95 and went to ECW, where he'd worked for a while until he go to WWF, where he'd become Flash Funk. Hmm. And he is one well, of the few people on this show actually still working today. Hmm. So he's not actually working for WCW at this point? No. 
Interesting. Him and Memoir are both technically New Japan people. Uh, as far as Benoit goes, they mentioned in commentary that Benoit competed in previous Super J Cup tournaments, mm-hmm. and then he in fact won one. So later this, that year, in 1995, he would compete again. Him and the winner of the previous year's show, Jushin Thunder Liger, got a bye to the quarterfinals due to their previous victories. Benoit would also beat a future Chris Jericho during that. Oh. With a terrifyingly sounding top rope tombstone pile driver. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I've not seen a video of that, but I'm, I'm horrified just picturing it. Yeah, that sounds frightening as heck. Unfortunately, Benoit would lose his next match with Jugato, which would sadly mean we don't get a, another Benoit Liger match. Oh, okay. Although we would get a one on that 95 show in WCW, so maybe that's the makeup for it. Yeah, consolation prize there. Exactly. <laughs> Our second match is Tokimitsu Ishizawa versus Yuji Nagata. The referee for this one, again, is Maseo Toyama. And this is actually day one, match one. So this is the legitimate opening match of the entire thing. I'm not surprised they didn't make this the main event of the show, if you <laughs> Ishizawa gets WCW's generic Asian guy music that they use for a lot of wrestlers over the years. Nagata gets their other generic Asian guy music. Tanae builds up that the two are almost mirror images of each other in terms of their backgrounds, and that holds very true, right down to their outfits, which are nearly identical. Nagata just has longer boots. Correct. With this being really poor video quality, believe me, it was tough keeping this one straight, and I'm honestly not 100% sure that I managed. Yeah. So forgive me if I made any mistakes here. Now, bear in mind that at this point, they're both young lions in New Japan. Yeah, thus probably the same. That, that's why, they, yeah. As a, yeah. As a young lion, they, you get to wear generic black trunks and boots and knee pads. And you have to earn, so earn your right to be a full character. Yeah. Get your gimmick, basically. Ishikawa, and believe me, trying not to mix up Ishikawa and Ishizawa is going to be really fun. Mm-hmm, I bet. <laughs> is happy that there is now Japanese wrestlers fighting. He even actually speaks up so we can hear him for a moment. Yes. <laughs> Nagata gets some early kicks, but Ishizawa takes him down by the legs, and the two rapidly trade ankle locks, then transition to trading arm and other holds, ending with an awesome moment where Ishizawa gets a headlock on Nagata, but Nagata simultaneously gets an ankle lock on Ishizawa. Mm. Ishizawa manages to turn that into a body scissors, and Nagata's forced to grab the ropes to break. There's some great mat work in the opening there. Oh yeah, sure. Bischoff very clumsily covers the history of Americans in North Korea, including, quote, a couple helicopter pilots who ended up there accidentally. That would refer to a 1994 incident in which a United States Army helicopter piloted by Chief Warrant Officers Bobby Hall and David Hilleman accidentally strayed into North Korean airspace and was shot down. Hilleman actually died of his injuries, and Hall was imprisoned, though he had at least been free for about a year by the time of this broadcast. Still, not the most graceful coverage of the incident. Yeah, no. Ishizawa starts to dominate, landing several furious strikes, and ducks the Nagata Enzigiri, or back-leg round kick, quoth Bischoff, mm-hmm. going for a camel clutch, and when Nagata blocks that, rapidly rolling him over for a cross-arm breaker. Nagata gets the ropes and fires back with a slightly scary overhead belly-to-belly suplex. Oh, yeah. Then hits his Enzigiri and locks on a crossface for the very sudden submission and the win. That felt like it was just getting going to me. Mm-hmm. The ref raises Nagata's arm as Bischoff mangles Ishizawa's name. 
no replays for these guys, sadly. It would have been good to see some of that mat work in slow motion to see the detail of what they were accomplishing out there, I think. Thoughts on this one? It's a strong technical match, but like he said, it's so short. Uh, If you're looking at really examining the actual like logistics of how people wrestle and all these fine details of countering and grappling, it's definitely good for that. Reminds me a bit of what Ring Honor did post full quarantine, you know, semi quarantining with their shows. Mm-hmm. They started doing the pure tournament with pure rules. So it's, you know, three rope breaks and all that. It was all about grappling and that. Oh, okay. This reminded me a lot of that. The problem with this one, and certain sent a problem with their more recent stuff, is that there's a bit of a lack of like flourish to it. Mm-hmm. Like it's all well done, but it's not as engaging as it could be if. They had something more character. Like, if we had a reason why they were fighting and not just, here's these two guys that are both trying to earn a place in the fight. Yeah, which is part of factor of them being in the Young Lions division. Right. And part of factor of this being a random show in North Korea. Correct. That you're not going to have much storyline to, to any of this at this point. Very true. Yeah. But I, I agree. Like, if you had some more character going on, I could picture you get both of these guys after they've actually earned their gimmicks and they have this same match, and it immediately has more impact. Agreed, yes. Yeah, for me, I think this was about the first quarter of a really, really good match. It feels like they did the opening and they started building up ferocity, and then it was just suddenly done. Mm-hmm. It ends far too soon and far too suddenly, but for the time that it lasted, it was excellent. Mm-hmm. Some exceptional and detailed mat work by both of them, intermixed with some vicious strikes, that made this an exciting watch. The commentators say that both guys are only like three years into their careers at this point, which is true. Both actually debuted a week apart in September 1992. Oh, there you go. And this is crazily impressive for that short amount of time. Mm. It ended too quickly and too suddenly, but it was a good introduction to both guys, and I'd love to see another match with both of them. Agreed. Uh, in 1996, they guys would have a rematch, so I'm kind of curious if we can find footage of that. They would face off again as part of the Young Lions Cup. Oh, there you go. And as far as Nagata goes, he's the only one from this pairing that we would probably ever be covering on future shows, because he comes in for a run in 1997, managed by Sonny Ono, brought in at Ultimo Dragon. He appeared throughout 97, I think in 98 as well. Well, cool. I'll I'll look forward to that, because I really, really enjoyed him here. Yeah. We cut to very brief footage of North Korea's opening ceremonies for the event, showing a very elaborate performance with women dressed in outfits with long sleeves letting them do synchronized moves that make it look like flowers opening all over the field. The soundtrack, which I think was by WCW for this video, not the original show's music most likely, Mm -hmm. sounds like that scene in a JRPG where the heroes have suffered a big loss but rediscovered their resolve and are headed off to face the main villain. (laughs) I believe on the podcast, Bishop asked about the theme music on here, and he says they didn't pipe it in when they were there, and since they decided not to do the live pay-per-view uh, commentary for it, they didn't bother me with that. Yeah. So what we're seeing is basically stuff from the WCW audio library put in. That's what I would figure, yeah, based on some of the music we've heard. Yeah. Bischoff says they got to experience a lot of North Korean culture, and they'll be sharing clips throughout the evening. Our third match is Ukami Gundan, Hiro Saito, and Masahiro Chono versus El Samurai and Tadeo Yasuda. The referee for this one again is Maseo Toyama, and this is day one, match four in the actual show. There's no interesting like North Korea trip stories. I do have a historical note for you on this one, though. Okay. 
Uh, Hiro Saito is a one-time NWA Junior Heavyweight Champion. Hmm. He defeated Denny Brown after Starcade. Denny Brown, hey, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Call back in the first forever show. Oh my gosh, that's a that's that's a while back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Saito and Chono get Zodiac and Rey Mysterio's future theme. Yes. <laughs> Their team name, Ukami Gundan, I believe translates to something like Great Spirit Army Corps, though it sounds like the combination of a really good Zelda-like video game and a really good mecha anime franchise. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I actually kind of would like to see a crossover of those two franchises. Like, can you picture playing as a, a giant mecha version of Bamaratarasu? <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sure. Tanae builds Chono up as a former NWA champion. He looks bad in his long coat. He does. Tanae says he's got a bad attitude these days, and Ishikawa says he's mad he didn't get enough opportunities overseas and inaudible. Yes. <laughs> Accurate. It's, it's seriously, like, midway through any of his lines, it'll just be, he didn't get enough opportunities. <laughs> it's like somebody reaches over and puts their hand over his mouth. Sometimes. Or they're, like, dragging his, pulling his chair slowly away from the <laughs> yeah. microphone. They're, they're like pranking him the entire show is the only explanation. Yeah. I don't recognize the music for Samurai and Yasuda. Samurai's mask I thought looked really cool. It's like a black and red version of an early Cyclops mask from the X-Men. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The full, yeah, full like, the, visor the full, effect. Yeah. The full head one. Yeah. They yeah. Mm-hmm. Tanae is a really good choice for commentary on this show as he spouts facts about all of these guys with ease, mm-hmm. telling about Yasuda's transition from sumo. Bischoff actually nicely segues that into a discussion of athletes in American sports like football transitioning to pro wrestling, which is a very common thing, as we've found over the years. Yes, <laughs> extremely. Yasuda trades shoulder blocks with Chono, but Chono sneaks in a kick on a test of strength and tags in Saito to work Yasuda's arm, only for Yasuda to block his holds and slam him, then tag El Samurai. Bischoff references Muhammad Ali's presence, not that we ever see him outside of one video package. It's bizarre. They never like, cut to him once. Yeah. <laughs> like, what happened? Tanay notes that Samurai once beat Jushin Liger for the IWGP title. Samurai gets one and a half off a leg drop, but Saito tags Chono, who brutally Yakuza kicks Samurai in the face. He does, yes. <laughs> Jeez. Ouch. Samurai sunset flip for two, and he tags Yasuda. Yasuda hits a weird big boot that just seems to graze Chono, but Saito and Chono double clothesline him, and Saito hits a senton, a sayitan? Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> for two. Yasuda easily pushes Saito to the corner to tag Samurai, but Saito dodges a dropkick. Bischoff has upgraded rope rebounds now to 60 miles per hour. Oh, wow. <laughs> Well, there's a little uh, speed markers on the ground. Yeah, 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 and like in the racing games. Yeah, you got a booster. Yeah, there you go. Saito and Chono trade off beating up Samurai, and Saito knees him in the balls. <laughs> he does. But Samurai tags Yasuda, who hits a great stalling suplex, his weird grazing big boot, and sumo slaps, then tags Samurai for a flying headbutt for two and a half on Chono. Samurai grabs Chono from behind, and Chono gives him the mother of all mule kicks. Mm-hmm. Sending him airborne. Yes, it looked painful. Chono and Saito do not want Samurai to have descendants. No. Bischoff sarcastically calls that a very technical move. <laughs> Yasuda protests, and that distracts the ref, so Chono and Saito can double-team poor aching Samurai. 
Yakuza Kick by Chono, and Saito deals with Yasuda as Chono hits a top rope flying shoulder block to Samurai for the three count and the win. Chono and Saito pose victoriously, and Ishikawa points out that Chono bowed respectfully, and Bischoff says, sure, he guesses that makes up for kicking Samurai in the groin. (laughs) Yeah, right? Yasuda re-enters the ring and chases Chono, Saito, and the ref, mostly the ref, honestly, out. The poor ref falls pretty badly out of the ring, and either he's selling really well or he genuinely pulled something in his back. Mm. Samurai nicely does not forget that his balls hurt as he's awkwardly trying to bow. I'm not sure much that's selling. How much yeah, I, I was going to say, I'm, I'm hoping that none of those shots were actually legit, but that last one really looked like it might have been. It did, yeah. We get replays of the first Yakuza kick, then the flying shoulder block, and Tanae oddly discusses it like we're watching a replay of the second Yakuza kick and the flying shoulder block. <laughs> <laughs> Thoughts on this one? Unlike the previous match, I thought they did a good job showing the sort of heel and face dynamic mm-hmm. quite well with here. There's definitely no mistaking Chono and Saito as good guys here. Mm-hmm. They're definitely, you know, the big bullying types, and they'll knock you around, and they will, as mentioned, take cheap shots to get the advantage. Yes. I thought Samurai did a good job playing the sort of fight from underneath character. Yes, absolutely. Constantly fighting back, no matter what they do to him. It definitely gets you sympathy when he gets launched airborne by his balls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it does, yes. And credit required to do, Yasuda, as they mentioned, is not very long into pro wrestling, having come out of sumo. But I thought he shows good little flashes of what he can do as a character. I'm kind of curious to see more matches with him later, see how much he builds upon the sort of sumo stuff with the slaps, mm-hmm. integrating that into a, like a full wrestling character. Yeah, I believe they mentioned he's been in it for about a year yes. at this point. Which That's is, right, yeah. He's quite good for just a year. Yeah. But they tell a pretty good story here. I mean, both of the good guys are strong and efficient, but Chono and Sita are just too vicious and sneaky to get a win on. Yeah. Yeah, I thought this was a perfectly acceptable tag match. You can kind of tell that Yasuda's new. His sequences are a little bit repetitive, and it feels like they're keeping him to what he knows how to do. But he's a big, impressive-looking guy, and what he does, he does mostly well. It's only the big boot spot that I feel looks a little bit awkward, and that's more to me how Chono and Saito choose to sell it. Mm-hmm. They're doing it like it's he kicks on the side of their head and past it or something, rather yeah. than actual impact, mm-hmm. which just looks a little bit odd. Does yeah. Otherwise, everyone involved put on a good show, and Chono and Saito had some nasty moves, particularly when attacking poor Samurai's crotch. <laughs> <laughs> yes. They worked really well with Yasuda's power and Samurai's speed, and everyone came out of this looking pretty good. It's not a standout or very complex, but it's good fun as long as you're not El Samurai. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> uh, about a year from now, El Samurai would become the WWF World Light Heavyweight Champion. Oh, okay. And of course, as that champion, he would put up on the line as part of the Super J Crown. Ah. He would, of course, not win that tournament. That would be won by the Great Sasuke, and later won by Liger. However, he would later beat Liger for the Super J Crown. Oh, okay. Now, it is worth noting for the, how confusing as the J-Crown thing is. So, if you don't remember, it basically it's eight light heavyweight slash cruiserweight titles put in one tournament. Whoever won got all of them. Yeah. So, you have a great visual of Sasuke as well Ultimo Dragon carrying their crazy eight belts around. They yeah, a- legitimately them. too many belts for you to carry on your own. Yes. Where, like, Sonny Ono has to carry, like, two of them out himself yes. or something, too. Yeah. Poor Sasuke looks like a scarecrow holding all these belts. 
when he won initially. It's pretty crazy. It's so cool, though, yeah. right? It's oh, like, no, absolutely, yeah. You want to look important instantly, walk out of the entrance ramp carrying eight title belts. Yes, exactly. <laughs> now, the weird caveat for El Samurai's win is that they had a match where Liger lost one of the titles. I believe it was like the British Commonwealth Heavyweight title or something. Something yeah. like that. I forget what the actual belt is. There's two, as I said, there's too many belts. <laughs> so technically, he had a match where just that was on the line. He lost that to somebody else. And they just kind of went, eh, and kept the Super J Crown thing going for a while with one less belt. <laughs> Presumably, that organization said, we'd like our belt back, please. So. Presumably, yes. A <laughs> uh, little side note as well, since Ron the Governor Carroll Samurai again, proving his longevity in sport. His last major title win is actually in 2010. Wow. Him and his partner would win the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Tag Titles, beating the future Finn Balor in that match. Oh, cool. Yeah. That was around the time of, if not during, the initial Bullet Club storyline with mm. Prince Devitt, where he's trying to take over everything. Okay. No, so it's pretty impressive that he here he is 15 years later, and he's still winning belts like nothing happened. Yeah. He's, he's good. I mean, I, yeah. I really enjoyed his work in this match, so... Would love if we somehow end up with him on another show at some point, but like I said, I don't know that we do for WCW stuff. I will say my only—it's not really a critique of him; it's more confusing thing for me—is that I know that before this, anyways, Eddie Guerrero wrestled under a mask Mm. and a similar-looking outfit with his long hair hanging at the back. (laughs) So I really did initially think when I saw him that it was him. Then once I figured someone else, it kind of went along with it. So, pardon me, once to see an El Samurai um, Eddie Guerrero match, I believe he was um, Black Tiger, I think. It was yeah, name. that's right, I believe so. So, I kind of want to see one of the matches for the quality, but at the same time, it'd be really confusing for me to watch. Probably, <laughs> I would imagine based so, Based on yeah. the looks. <laughs> Bischoff throws to a second video package, this one featuring Ric Flair, Muhammad Ali, Antonio Inoki, and various other wrestlers posing and seeing North Korean monuments. Ali wrestles a big lion sculpture because you might as well. Yeah. When in Pyongyang. Yeah. Bischoff talks about the tours that they were given on 83 Weeks. It was on those tours that he started to understand what an error he'd made in not consulting the State Department, as he realized that he was now being used by the North Korean propaganda machine. Their every move was documented by North Korean cameras, and they were forced to lay flowers at the statue of Kim Il-sung, the recently passed founder of North Korea. They were led to monument after monument and presented with North Korea's alternate history version of many world events, including proclaiming that North Korea was responsible for ending World War II and personally defeated Japan and forced their surrender, leaving out the United States' involvement entirely. That's interesting. Bischoff says there were many times during the trip when he really wanted to say something about how wrong the view being presented was, but he knew, of course, that if he did, he'd be in grave danger. Bischoff tells the tale as well of a surreal moment in which he and Sonny Ono, just after getting into a vehicle with their interpreter-slash-secret police escort, found out just how monstrous North Koreans believed that Americans and Japanese were when the woman turned around and calmly advised them that it was illegal to rape North Korean women. Oh. As though, you know, it, it'd be perfectly legal elsewhere. Yeah, it's a, th- thanks for telling me. Jeez. He says they just kind of, oh no, and he looked at each other and just kind of looked back at her and said, okay. <laughs> Fair enough. The whole experience of the trip clearly shook him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they talk with different people about that in Dark Side of the Ring, about how 
they were taken on a bus and they were handed flowers and then said, go lay these flowers on it. But when the coverage goes, like, look at these great honorable Americans bringing flowers to honor right. Kim Il-sung. Exactly, yeah. Look, our global rivals have come to, uh, come to pay homage to our founder. Yes. I mean, sure, they might have thought, hey, let's go see the founder's statue at some point while we're there. But yeah. they were not thinking of it as, like, we are bowing before him. No. At the time. Not. Yeah. There's definitely some interesting stories that Bischoff shares on the 83 Weeks podcast about this. And I think well worth a, a listen to anyone who's interested in knowing more about this event and the Dark Side of the Ring episode as mm-hmm. well, I'm sure. Yes. Our fourth match is Manami Toyota and Mariko Yoshida versus Akira Hokuto and Bull Nakano. Referee for this one is Maseo Tiger Hattori, which this one I know because Bischoff and Tanay actually say his name during the match. That's nice. Thank you, guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this one is day one, match two. Oh, and yes, both referees are actually named Maseo. <laughs> yeah. Not that they're both featured, but we do have two different Saidos on the show, technically. <laughs> As well, yes, yeah. So it is worth noting that all the performers in this are actually not from New Japan. They're actually from All Japan Pro Wrestling. Oh, okay. So it's kind of weird, given that if you think of this as a WCW New Japan show, I don't know if they didn't have any New Japan women to bring, or what the whole story in that is, not knowing enough about the territories, but that's kind of a weird thing to think about. That's especially interesting, because from what I recall hearing from other sources at points, New Japan and All Japan were so at odds at points, yeah. to the extent that if a American wrestler came over and worked for one of them, they were basically blacklisted by the other for a while. Yeah. I don't know exactly where in the timeline that is. So right. This may have been at a point where they were working together better. But then there's points later on where big stars like Mudo would leave and go to All Japan. It was a big black mark on them as far as New mm-hmm. Japan fell as well. That's in the 2000s, though, so it may have been better. Yeah, so this may have been when they were a little friendlier. I'm not sure. She mentioned there's a match not featured on this show that did happen at the event. On night two, there's actually a singles match between Bull Nakano and Akira Hokuto. Or the teammates in this match. Correct. They're together in that one, but they're rivals. So what's weird about it is that match we're not getting is one of only two title matches that happen on this show. Huh. So the match they have on night two is for the CMLL World Women's Championship. Okay. Which Hagato was champion. That's cool. I, I would have liked to see that one, honestly, yep. uh, considering these two are both excellent, excellent wrestlers. Yes. And tying it back to another show... Uh, Hokuto actually would hold that title, obviously not losing it on this show then, because why would you have a title change on this show? Yeah. She would lose the title in late 96, when she'd be stripped of the title for wrestling on Nitro, and they build up to Starcade <laughs> with their Women's Championship Tournament. Interesting. I don't know why CML got so mad about that, but they did. <laughs> Toyota and Yoshida come to the ring first. I can't tell if it's actually designed that way or not, but Yoshida, dressed in white, has this scarf that seems to fray out to the side, so it looks like a single angel wing. It's probably not an accidental thing. Yeah. I think, yeah. <laughs> She's uh, doing a Sephiroth before Sephiroth, I think, there. Yes. <laughs> Might inspire Kenny Omega a little bit. Toyota wears a cool red and gold robe. Ishikawa seems to say something about one of them reminding him of his sister. I didn't catch most of it again. There's a whole thing where he talks about how beautiful his sister is. Because I think Bischoff talks about how pretty one of them is. I think Yoshida, maybe? Yeah. And he says, well, you haven't met my sister. And he he got on a weird tangent about how, well, you never offered me a chance to meet her and everything. 
Bull Nakano and Akira Hokuto come out next. Nakano has her trademark look with the blue hair that points straight up. Oh, yeah. And Hokuto is wearing a scary kabuki mask and a big red wig and carrying a katana. It's a good thing this isn't a hardcore match. Her opponents would be dead. Yes. Agreed. <laughs> Thankfully, the mask and the sword are set aside for the match. The commentators compare Nakano to Vader, which is fair in many respects. Oh, yeah. All four fight to start. And Nakano puts an end to that by clotheslining Toyota and Yoshida simultaneously. Yoshida and Hokuto get to their corners, and Toyota and Nakano square off. Nakano hits a monstrous clothesline that flips Toyota end over end, and Bischoff, of course, makes car crash jokes. Why not? <laughs> In fairness, I think they'd make the same jokes with someone over here that was named Ford or something like that. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> Nakano flings Toyota around, but Toyota dropkicks her, but she doesn't go down, so Toyota hits a second rope dropkick, and then another, and that finally knocks Nakano down for two. Mm -hmm. Tag to Yoshida, and Nakano murders her with a clothesline, and tags Hokuto, who gets two counts with a top rope splash and a rapid pile driver. It was like super fast that yeah. she did that, it was amazing. Mm -hmm. Hokuto slaps on the Rita Romero special, an elevated surfboard that looks super painful. Yes. And ends it with an eye rake just to be mean. Why not? Tagged to Nakano, and she picks Yoshida up and folds her like a pretzel. <laughs> mm. I think it was um, Paige that used the same hold yes, later. correct. Yeah. That was, uh, that was interesting to see. For sure, yeah. Nakano and Hokuto keep adding to Yoshida's eventual chiropractor bill. And Nakano gets two off just hurling Yoshida bodily to the mat. Mm -hmm. Bischoff and Tanae build up referee Hattori's own legitimate amateur wrestling experience. He was a world champion bantamweight wrestler. Oh. I found out that he actually became a pro wrestling trainer at Hiro Matsuda's school, teaching amateur wrestling basics. And in fact, one of his students was Hulk Hogan. Oh. Hattori actually only recently retired as a ref in February 2020. Correct, yeah. Had a quite a lengthy refereeing career. Yeah, him and Liger had their big ceremonies to retire, yeah. Yeah. Yoshida finally dodges a Hokuto clothesline with a cartwheel and hits a series of Muda-like handspring elbows, then a fisherman's suplex for two. Hokuto interrupts a top rope move with a superplex for two and a half and holds Yoshida for a Nakano second rope clothesline, but Yoshida dodges and Nakano nails Hokuto. Tagged to Toyota, but Hokuto immediately gets the boots up on a top rope dive and tags Nakano, who powerbombs Toyota for two. Bischoff called it a pile driver. <laughs> Why not? What a powerbomb by Bull, Tanae says, correcting Eric without sounding like he's correcting Eric. <laughs> <laughs> he knows who si signs his paychecks. <laughs> yes, indeed. Toyota rolls up Nakano on a second powerbomb attempt for two. Toyota and Yoshida try to double suplex Nakano, but she suplexes both of them instead. Tagged to Hokuto. But Yoshida and Toyota dodge a top rope dive and knock Nakano and Hokuto out of the ring. Yoshida dives onto both, then holds them for an excellent springboard plancha by Toyota. Mm -hmm. You pointed out, I think, when we were watching it out, that nicely Yoshida holds them just long enough for Toyota to hit them yeah. and then backs off rather than taking the blow herself like everyone has ever since. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> hold, them, hold them in place and move out of the way just in time. Yep. Yeah. Back in, the teams trade off for rapid-fire two-counts off a Toyota Moonsault, Hokuto Victory Roll, Hokuto High-Angle German Suplex, and Yoshida Rope Run Springboard Crossbody. That was really cool how like quickly she jumps up the ropes when she's oh, yeah. flung at them and just smooth as silk jumps right back off. 
Nakano resists more drop kicks, so Yoshida and Toyota take her down with a double drop kick, but she ducks the double clothesline and Hokuto wipes both out with a split-legged top rope drop kick. Toyota rolls out, and Nakano clotheslines the heck out of Yoshida to send her out, then sends both outside for an amazing Hokuto top rope flipping double clothesline to the outside. Mm-hmm. Hokuto drags Yoshida in and slams her, then Nakano hits a top rope leg drop for the three count and the win. Nakano and Hokuto get their hands raised, and Toyota slowly helps Yoshida back up so they can take their bows and make their exit as well. We get no replays for that match, because why would we want to watch awesome stuff again? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thoughts on this one? I thought it was a really good match. It was very strong uh, as far as the action goes. They nailed a nice variety of moves. Maybe they leaned on dropkicks a little bit, but I thought they were all good, so mm-hmm. I can't complain too much about them. Obviously, the word for this match is impactful. Yes. Because there are some clotheslines, as you mentioned, power bombs, suplexes, all that kind of stuff. Credit to both Toyota and Yoshida for really taking all that and keep fighting back from it. Yeah, it's it's amazing, like, their their resilience, but without ever making it look like the moves didn't hurt. No, yeah. They don't yeah. no-sell anything, but oh, yeah. they are up fast enough to keep the action flowing. Yeah. For the most part, there's a really good story they tell, which is that both Nakano and Hokuto are just so strong and powerful, they have to keep moving. Anytime they're too predictable or too slow, they just get wiped out and slammed, and they have to fight back again. I think for me, the only critique I would really give it is that you kind of lose the impact of how good the faces are with their jumping and flipping when you then see Hokuto do a summer's little dive the outside. That is true. Because she's there to, to do really big power moves to them, and here she is doing this big flip. That's still a really good move to me wrong, and it's a really good match, but that's a very slight critique for a match. Otherwise, it's it's really hard to poke holes in, honestly. It really shows what they can do given less than 10 minutes for this whole situation. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I thought this was awesome. These four started full throttle and then hit the nitrous. <laughs> yeah, giving us an incredibly fast-paced match that was filled with crazy acrobatics and powerful strikes and slams, the latter often but not exclusively from the incredibly impressive Nakano. Female Vader is an apt descriptor. All four of the women are great in this, but Nakano definitely is the standout as she just hurls people around bodily and stands up to everything thrown at her, making it feel like Yoshida and Toyota were in a desperate fight to just keep her on defense whenever she was in the ring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not to undersell Hokuto either. Her rapid pile driver and that high-angle German suplex in particular were awesome, and Yoshida and Toyota rounded things out with incredible precision and grace in every move. I really enjoyed this one, and it's the first match we've had on this one that felt like it actually built to a really big, satisfying finish. Uh, both Hokuto and Nakano would, of course, end up in WCW in late 1995. I believe it's a World War III event. They're attacking match, and obviously we have Hokuto quite a bit more, being one of the, the few women's champions they ever actually had featured on their television shows. Yeah. That every other title change happened in Japan for some weird reason. Yeah. And never went to Medusa for some strange reason. <laughs> it's bizarre. It is strange. It is so strange. Interestingly, uh, Bulunakano retired from wrestling in 1997 to become a pro golfer. She's apparently done quite well. She's still doing it now. I so wonder not- if she still does the hair that way, because that would be awesome. I don't think she does, sadly. Pro- probably not, but... Now, if I were her, I would have, like, covering my, my putters, I'd have that on my on my clubs. <laughs> yes! Have the little blue thing on them like that. That would be awesome. <laughs> I would definitely have that. So sadly, I don't think we're going to feature 
Minami Toyota or Yoshida ever again, which is, I hope, hopefully I'm wrong, but I feel like I should mention, I was reading about um, Minami Toyota. In 2012, she had a special retirement show. Mm-hmm. I almost want to watch, if this is recorded, I really want to watch it just so the, to your more curiosity of it. So the gimmick of her retirement match, excuse me, the gimmick of her retirement show, rather, is that anyone that wanted to come have one last chance to wrestle her would get a chance. She wrestled a series of one-minute matches. She would have a total of 51 of them, in fact. Whoa! Yeah. But yeah, I, I really want to make you, make you try to recap a show Oh God! Of like 51-minute matches. Oh, that would be a nightmare recap-wise, but that sounds actually genuinely cool. Yes. Well, it gets better. So that was like sort of the build-up, because, you know, that's not enough. Mm-hmm. Like a little hour of one-minute matches almost is not enough. She would then face off with her main rival, who in the first match would beat her. So Toyota would with sense and challenge her to a second match. Mind you, these are not moment matches anymore. These are regular matches. Right. She would then win both sec- second match and a third match they would have <laughs> because her opponent was upset to finally retire after all that action. Holy crap. That just. You're thinking that's, that's for a retirement show. Yeah. But this is clearly the later stages of her career. You've got that much incredible amount of stamina. Yeah. Wow. That's. That that's amazing. That oh yeah sounds absolutely incredible. Yeah, I love to watch to make you write the match recap for that event. <laughs> match number thirty-seven. Yes, when I'm a Toyota in the uh, in the twenty-seventh hour of Let's Go to the Ring episode. <laughs> what do you think of this match? Well, they had about forty-five seconds to do something. That was pretty good. Yeah. I do want to curiously if I can find video of this somewhere just to to see what it looks like. Yeah. Yeah. Our fifth match is Shinya Hashimoto versus Scott Norton. And this is possibly for Hashimoto's IWGP World Heavyweight Championship. It seems to be listed as that in various articles that I found, but nobody mentions it on commentary. So I'm not actually 100% sure if that's the case. I think that it is, because if you look it up, it mentions that there are only two title matches on the Collision in Korea two-day event, and this is one they often cite. Okay. The referee for this one is, again, Tiger Hattori, and this is day one's main event, the seventh match on day one. Gotcha. Uh, fortunately, poor Scott Norton is part of probably the most famous Collision in Korea event. There's about five different shoot videos where he discusses this okay. story, so it's pretty prolific. So I'll do my best to give it to you properly. You have to understand the situation they're in at this point. They're all bunked in this hotel, basically the one hotel at this point that's actually fully functional. Mm-hmm. In probably in all North Korea, or at least in Pyongyang. So that's why they're there. Scott Norton has recently gotten married. So he's been dealing with the international travel part working in Japan with her. Yeah. So it's, you know, you work a show and you call her, talk about your day. Cause you're not seeing her probably for a while. You're on a X Norway tour. Norton's here. His wife is not. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Norton's, yeah. Even in, as far as Japan, being in Japan, she's, he's definitely not in North Korea. Yeah. Which I don't blame her. Yeah. No, me neither. So Scott Norton explains the excruciating detail which he had to go through to make a phone call from a North Korean hotel at this point. His room is on the seventh floor of the hotel. He had to go down to the lower level below the entry area of the hotel Mm -hmm. to talk to the lady that runs the switchboard for calling in and out of the Oh my gosh. And according to him, the elevators did not work. So he has to walk down seven flights of stairs, pay her whatever the charge is to make a call out to 
where it is in the USA, and then run up seven flights of stairs and hope that his wife hasn't hung up the phone. Oh, God. Because at least he's going to call right away from when he's there. You can't just pick it up there and talk to him. Oh, yeah. Okay. You got to talk from his room. So they legit have phones in the room, but yeah. you have to go down seven flights of stairs to tell someone that you want to make the call and Correct. sprint back. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Wow. So, not the most efficient system. Yeah. That had been going on for about three days. <laughs> He's tried several times to call her, gone through that situation multiple times. Either the call didn't go through, or she's hung up by that point. A number of things. So, back at home, his wife thinks that he's blowing her off to hang out with the boys and have fun. Obviously, she's not thinking of the fact he's in North Korea. Yeah. And not thinking of the exactly where he is at this point. <laughs> so, on day three, he, he finally makes the situation work. I don't know how much this cost him, by the way, both in stamina and in money to pay that lady to make futile phone calls that many times. Finally gets her to talk to his wife after all this time. She's upset, thinks he's been blowing her off, having fun, not doing anything with with her. He's not really mad at her, obviously. He's mad at everything else going on right now in his life. So he then expresses outrage, complaining about how, such a blank hole country he's in and how bad it is. In mid-sentence, the phone cuts out. Oh my gosh. In other words, we're listening. Yes. Yeah. So he says several minutes later, there's a knock on his door and there's few people... He doesn't say there's anyone with guns, but the implication is someone has guns. Yeah. So they take him down. They take him to the elevator, which now works. So basically, the elevator worked. They wouldn't let him use it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, just like no one used the elevator at all. They're interrogating him and all this stuff. The way he tells the story, he's convinced the reason he's still alive to this day to tell the story is that he's part of this massive PR event. You know, Muhammad Ali is there. CNN as reporters there. Yeah. And it's this big covered event. So, I think they figured if one guy went missing, no matter what the profile is, that would be bad for us. So, he thankfully is here to tell this story, but yes. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, they'd have to raise a, you know raise the bar a little bit on what uh, they'd usually do to disappear someone. Because yes. they're definitely going to get questions if someone involved in an uh, event with an actual, at this point, official of the Japanese government. Yes. <laughs> And mind you, someone going missing by the secret police on a peace mission. Yeah. Especially bad. Yeah. So, matter what happens in the match we're covering next, it's not as bad as what happened to him everywhere wow. else on the trip. Oh, my gosh. That's... <sighs> wow. That hopefully is hopefully was the worst experience someone had on this trip. Yes. Wow. That's That had to be terrifying. Yes. Jeez. Oh. Poor Scott Norton. Gal. <laughs> yes. Just to sort of lighten the mood a little bit, I have some little circle notes I could throw in here as well. That'd be kind of interesting. So, Scott Norton has been wrestling in New Japan for a while at this point. Mm -hmm. He famously was going to make an appearance for WCW, but then was unhappy and replaced by The Prisoner. Oh, right, yes. In the worst match of that last series. I don't think any question about that, no? Yeah, no. No, that was was, was really, really, really bad. Yeah. He was briefly a tag partner with Ludwig Borga, who at this point went by Tony Halme, which is his actual name. Okay. Where they beat the Steiner Brothers for the tag titles, briefly, before losing them to the Hellraisers, a.k.a. Robert Hawk and Kazuki Sasaki. Right. He would then form a new tag team with Hercules Hernandez, a.k.a. Assassin Number 2, <laughs> also Dark <laughs> yes. 883. The one that was not cuddly. 
Yes. Assassin number one is Cuddly Essa, and number two is Brawny. Yes. yes. Yeah, they would win, beat the Hellraisers for the tag titles as the great-named Jurassic Powers. <laughs> yes. Nice. Uh, a little interesting fact for you on Hashimoto as well. So, in 1989, he debuted as a big prospect. He was put in as part of a tournament to crown a new IWGP world champion. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a big start for you. Uh, one of the opponents he beat as part of the tournament, which obviously he didn't actually ultimately win, Victor Zangiev. You remember from the International Tag Team. Right, yeah. I think we liked him. Yes, he was the... Um, he was the smaller, hairier of the two. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he beat him as part of that initial run, but would later lose to someone who I believe actually ended up winning the tournament, Vader. Okay. Yes. I can picture a Hashimoto-Vader match being pretty awesome. Mm-hmm, absolutely. <laughs> Bischoff says he, quote, almost grew up with Norton in Minneapolis. Not quite sure what that means. Yeah. And talks up Norton's arm wrestling experience. Tanay explains that Norton has been a frequent challenger for the IWGP title, and that at the time of this match, Hashimoto was IWGP champion, but like I said earlier, he doesn't outright say that this was actually for the title. I guess it was. <laughs> yeah, as far as I can tell, it was. Norton comes out in his usual wrestling singlet, but with black and white vertical stripes. It's not a flattering look. Mm. Maybe it's a reference to him being replaced by the prisoner on the uh, oh, show. Yeah, there you go. At least they are wide enough that it didn't hurt my eyes to look at like Stevie Ray's did back on Slampery 99. That was oh, so yeah. bad. <laughs> the, that just blurs together. Yeah. Oh, just like couldn't couldn't watch sometimes. Yeah. Which was actually a benefit with that match. That's true. Bischoff mentions that Norton had a, quote, hard time adjusting to being in North Korea. <laughs> yes, as we learned. In reference to the events you described. Yes. And also mentions on the show how their passports were taken and they were followed everywhere by escorts. He doesn't go into detail, but he says he's pretty sure the North Koreans were glad when Norton was gone. (laughs) Ishikawa chimes in with something that was assuredly witty if I could have heard it at all. Yeah. Norton's opponent, Hashimoto, comes out wearing the title belt and a headband and gets what will soon be Dean Malenko's theme. Oh, yeah. He is a big fella as well. Mm Mm-hmm. He was a very major figure in Japanese wrestling, actually, being one of three men, the others being the Great Muda and Satoshi Kojima, who have been NWA World Heavyweight Champion, IWGP Heavyweight Champion, and Triple Crown Heavyweight Champion. Yes. The last itself, a combination of the PWF World Heavyweight Championship with the NWA United National Championship and the NWA International Heavyweight Championship. A bit later on, in 1997, he would set a record for the length of IWGP title reign at 489 days, which would not actually be broken until 2017. Yes. So quite an important figure in uh, Japanese pro wrestling. He also won the G1 Climax Tournament in 1998 as well. Okay, cool. Norton breaks free of a full Nelson with ease and body checks Hashimoto so hard that he sails clean out of the ring. It's a really good sell by Hashimoto. Yes. <laughs> Ishikawa says something about Hashimoto having a sumo body and Norton having bumps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess that means muscles. I'm not, not quite sure. Yeah. Hashimoto finally counters a charge with a high sidekick, leading to a kick combo that ends with an impressive and very surprising spin wheel kick for two. Mm-hmm. Hashimoto starts working Norton's arm with arm bars, wrist locks, and strikes, but occasionally gets flattened by a big Norton clothesline. 
Bischoff builds up his and Norton's shared AWA history, and Tanay mentions that Norton went to high school with Road Warrior Hawk and jokes about them bullying Bischoff for his lunch money. <laughs> Bischoff says if it was those two, he'd even have handed over his car keys. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> yes. Hashimoto ducks a Norton clothesline and hits a jump kick to the head. Really nice. Mm-hmm. He slaps on another arm bar, but Norton powers free with just one arm in a cool spot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hashimoto starts kicking him, but Norton roars and asks for more, repeatedly, until Hashimoto tries another spinning wheel kick, and Norton just casually ducks, mm-hmm. letting him sail overhead. Norton earns two counts off a clothesline, a neckbreaker, and a body slam into some big falling elbow drops. Today mentions, all of a sudden, that there's a 20-minute time limit. You know, just mentioning. Yeah, as you do. Hashimoto counters a Norton powerbomb with a back body drop and gets a beautiful drop kick. Mm-hmm. He is amazingly agile for a big dude. Oh, yeah. He goes back to wrenching Norton's arm, but Norton appears to break the eyes, and the camera misses Norton ground moves as some of Bischoff's commentary is lost in a burst of static. Bischoff, did you talk bad about Kim Jong-il? <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> Norton gets two counts off a of Vader-like second-rope splash and a nasty gut buster into an elbow drop and a thrusting clothesline. Bischoff proposes a match between Hashimoto and Vader, which, as I mentioned, I would love. Yes. Ishikawa proposes a New Japan versus WCW show, basically setting up Starcade 1995 right there. Yep, pretty much. Hashimoto hits a beautiful sweep kick, then gets two counts from a kick combo, a massive jumping elbow drop, and a DDT. Norton seems to go for a power slam off a whip, but either his grip slips or there's a little miscommunication, but they recover admirably fast and he hits a DDT instead. Norton can't get Hashimoto lifted for a pile driver, then struggles a bit, but finally muscles him up and over for a suplex for two. I'm honestly not quite sure if that was a botch due to legit tiredness, or if they were trying to portray resisting, but if the former, at least they abandoned the more dangerous pile driver. Yeah, I uh, felt like that was that was planned. Like they're trying to build up yeah. the move, build it up like that. Yeah, it, it feels like they're trying to. Yeah. to, to but it is a towards the end of a twenty minute match, so right. I could see the other. I'm going to give a bit of the doubt on that. I think. Yeah, personally, yeah. Hashimoto resists Norton chops and chops Norton to his knees, then lands a massive sidekick for two, but Norton fires back with an equally massive power bomb, then hits a top rope splash for two. He whips Hashimoto to the ropes. But as he sets for a clothesline, there's a pop, and streamers rain down from above, signaling the 20-minute time limit, so it's a time limit draw. Norton looks dejected, but he and Hashimoto shake hands. Thoughts on this one? I'm kind of torn on this one. If you break it down in the action, I think it's overall really good. They tell good stories with Hashimoto having to sort of fight against Norton's strengths, uh, which is literally his strength in this case. Yes. <laughs> the ability, you know, to take him down from moves. You also get good bits where Norton is able to predict what Hachimoto is going to do, like you talked about with the ducking the spin wheel kick and stuff like that. I think my problem with the match, and it doesn't mean I necessarily don't like it, my problem with the overall is I think it was kind of built backwards. They basically decided that they're going to work a 20-minute time limit draw match. Mm-hmm. So they paced a match like you would pace out a 20-minute time limit draw match. They wrestled a match like because they knew they were going to do this, but they didn't make it look like a normal match. They just happened to run 20 minutes, is what I'm saying. Mm, okay. It's like they, they work holds longer than you might. You know, these transitions are a little longer. They're never, it's never boring, but yeah. it's never 
it's it doesn't feel like a match that just happens running out of time. It feels like they they work towards a few minutes left of the match and then do here's our quick ending spot because we're running out of time. That said, I do like the match a lot. It's, I mean, probably the best Scott Norm match I've seen, which I know is not a high metric necessarily, because I've only seen, what, one other one, I think, on the show officially? Yeah, one or two, I think we've done. But Yeah. Oh, did we get him as part he's of on, the... Uh, he's on Battle Bowl, the one. I would say he's yeah. part of Battle Bowl, so yeah. I think he was good in that. I just, mm-hmm. It's hard to it's hard to pull good from that show. <laughs> yeah. You're plucking it out of there. Yeah. Like we said on the on on that show, I think it's it's one of those shows where like any individual match on that show is actually probably pretty much fine. Yeah. But it's just the the sheer string of them and how much they're like each other. Yeah, because it's definitely the most variety I've seen from a Scott and Norton match. So credit where credit's due for that. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm more of a Scott and Norton fan, I think, than than you are, Al. But even I was a little bit nervous when I heard 20 minute time limit and Scott Norton. <laughs> but this was pretty good. Hashimoto and Norton just belted each other with big hits and power moves, and they really wrenched on their holds, so it was one of those fun big man matches where they just pound the crap out of each other because they can both take it. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> Hashimoto had some surprising agility, too, with several nice jumping kicks that I would never have expected from the initial look of him. Mm-hmm. This had a good back-and-forth sort of feel, and it felt like a contest between two guys that knew each other well and had a good rivalry going on. It did slow down from time to time, I'll agree, but they never really lost the flow, and they did an impressive job managing a lengthy match for two big dudes. I didn't really like it ending in a time limit draw, of course, but I do appreciate that they at least avoided the stereotypical, oh, I almost had a three count, but for the buzzer. Yeah, yeah. You know, sort of ending. It never felt like they visibly sat around and waited for the timer or anything like that. They were clearly fighting up until the very last moment. Mm-hmm. So it was slower paced than some of the other stuff tonight, but it was still really enjoyable. Yeah, I agree with that. There's some interesting cross-connections involving people on the show and the IWGP Championship. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, in 1998, Scott Norman actually win the title. Which I think we discussed in a previous show. He never actually wears it on Nitro, save for like, I think maybe one Thunder gets to wear the belt on. Yeah. And it's like bizarre that he's a world champion of this major promotion and they don't want to, you know, promote it since he's part of the NWO. Look how we're, you know, we're winning across the world. But yeah, no. you'd think they would build that up, but maybe IWGP people said no. It's possible. It feels more like a Hogan doesn't want someone outshining his title win. Fair. It's another world title thing. Yeah. That could be too. I don't know for sure, but it's just how it feels based on his history. So, I. Mentioning the cross-connections, the match Scott Norton would win would be for the vacant title. He'd beat Yuchi Yuch Nagata, who we saw earlier in the show. Oh, cool. For the belt. That would be a really interesting match. Mm-hmm. And the reason the match happened was because the belt was vacated by Masahiro Chono, who was injured <laughs> while champion. <laughs> wow, interesting. Oh, instantly, Scott Norton would later lose the world title to the Great Muda. The month of that match? January. <laughs> it returns. Callbacks. <laughs> Uh, as far as Hashimoto himself, he's world champion when this match happens, but he would lose it like a week later. Mm-hmm. He loses on May 3rd to the Great Muda. Okay. It's funny, he's champion when this match happens, but he's not a champion like a week after it actually occurs, yeah. and been almost two months since he actually held the title when this show really airs. Yeah, yeah. I think this is one of the rare cases, at this point, rare cases where they really openly admit we're recording commentary in post. Yes. Because Danae actually says, at this time, he was IWGP champion. Correct. That is a lot of interesting connections between them, yeah. 
Bischoff cuts to another video of the opening ceremonies. Ladies running with big flowers and a choreographed flag show this time, leading to some gymnastic work on huge parallel bars and some people doing a choreographed dance with basketballs. <laughs> okay. Weird. Some kids did some acrobatics too, it looks like, and there was a martial arts demonstration besides. Looks like quite a huge spectacle. The performances do look impressive, and it's just too bad about the regime putting it all on. Yeah. On 83 Weeks, Bischoff also mentions that, unshown on this version, obviously, proclamations of loyalty to the regime were a big part of the North Korean pre-show as well. Oh, okay. Our sixth match is Tadeo Yasuda, again, Mm -hmm. versus Hawk Warrior, otherwise known as Road Warrior Hawk. Referee for this one is Tiger Hattori. And this is Day 2, Match 6. As Yasuda enters, Tanay mentions that it was going to be the Road Warriors in a tag match, but Animal suffered a recurrence of his back injury from a few years back and couldn't come, so Hawk's in a singles match instead. Hawk comes out in the full spike gear and everything. I imagine that it was fun getting that through North Korean customs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Tanay talks about Hawk's time in New Japan, teaming with Kensuke Sasaki as the Hellraisers. Mm-hmm. Bischoff jokes about what it would be like riding a plane next to Hawk with those spiked shoulder pads on. I'm pretty sure that he doesn't wear those in flight, Eric. Mostly sure, anyway. (laughs) Now, I assume Zuki Sasaki and Hawk didn't have the nail sticking out of their head like the proper Hellraiser. No, no. No, the spiked shoulder pads, I think, are the replacement for that. Oh, okay. Gotcha. (laughs) I'd like to see that reverse, like, have Pinhead be, I guess, pinned shoulders. (laughs) Have him wear those. (laughs) Quite a contrasting gimmicks here as they line up across the ring. We've got Yasuda in just the plain orange trunks, nothing fancy, entering to generic music, across from Hawk in the full face paint, big spiky shoulder pads, and entering to his personalized What a Rush theme. <laughs> Sadly, he didn't bring Rocco on the trip. <laughs> Aside from some sumo slaps, Hawk throws Yasuda around the ring like a ragdoll and clubs him down early on, and resists a Yasuda shoulder block. I know that it's Hawk, but it feels a little bit weird that the former sumo wrestler is the guy who can't knock his opponent down, rather than the guy who can't be knocked down. Yeah, fair enough. Yasuda challenges Hawk to a sumo face-off, and does the traditional sumo stomp, the shiko. Ishikawa notes that those are said to ward off evil spirits. This is true, though they're also a lower body exercise. Mm-hmm. Bischoff says Hawk is one heck of an evil, evil spirit, and Ishikawa jokes he's like a tengu. Which is a good pick, actually. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, bird demon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yasuda and Hawk charge, and Yasuda knocks Hawk down. But Hawk springs up and clotheslines him down, hits such a high-flying shoulder block it's almost a knee strike, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and tries a top rope splash that Yasuda dodges. We get a nice Yasuda butterfly suplex, but Hawk no-sells, clotheslines him, power slams him, and hits a flying clothesline from the top for the three-count in the win. Hawk gets his hand raised and goes outside to pose in victory, as Bischoff makes sure to mention Hogan at least once while he's praising WCW Wrestling. Of course. We get replays of the sumo contest and the final flying clothesline. Thoughts on this one? Uh, I thought it was pretty decent, all things considered. It's, what, two and a half minutes long, I think? Yeah. Altogether? Very short. Yeah. So, bearing in mind that at this point, it's Rory Hawk in a singles match. Not a lot of variety of what he can do in a situation like this. And it's a guy that's wrestled for like about a year. Yeah. It's actually not bad. No, no, no. I do appreciate, I noticed it more on the rewatch. He's sort of less zoned down from watching so much in a row. I noticed that Hawk gave more offense to Yusuda, at least in that small amount of time that I remembered. Mm. He left him to a suplex. Obviously, the suplex doesn't matter that much. 
but lets him do his body slam, lets him do his suplex, and lets him you know, knock him around a little bit before never really just going to the finish. Mm-hmm. So it's not 100% one-sided squash match. It's like a 97% one-sided squash match. Oh, okay. <laughs> you don't have to mention the clothesline interesting, because a lot of times people do a flying clothesline, a jumping clothesline. You sort of hit them, and they go down. With his, he hits them and like pulls him down with his arm. Yeah, it, it like becomes a like a flying rock bottom at a certain yeah. point. Yeah, I don't know. If, it might have just been their timing being a little it bit off be. or something. Yasuda, as we mentioned, is like a year into wrestling. so Right, it's very possible. <laughs> uh, Reminds me of there's a move you see a lot in wrestling, the um, sling blade, where you jump and you like pull him down like from behind with your arm as you like, mm-hmm. sort of jump past them. Yeah, <laughs> just didn't look like a fun clothesline to take. Yeah. Yeah, I thought this was incredibly short. It was nice to see Hawk, sure, and Yasuda did get to show off a few nice moves, but this barely had time to be anything, at only about two and a half minutes. Obviously, from the sound of things, this wasn't the match that they had planned, but I kind of wish that they'd come up with something that had a little bit more time to breathe and develop. I didn't feel like Yasuda was very well served by this one. I thought he came off looking far worse than against Chono and Saito, as Hawk just he did let him have some offense, but then he just basically shrugged off everything he did. No, I mean, that's, that's where we're hawk. That's kind of what I expected. Yeah, point. true. So I didn't think it was bad by any stretch of the imagination, but it just felt kind of there. Mm-hmm. It was, let's get Hawk on the show, and nothing really beyond that. Yeah. On that note, so crazy, but also kind of obvious situation here. Like, literally the match that follows this, both on our broadcast and I think on the actual night of, if I remember correctly, Yes. Is the Steiner's tag team match against Kazuki Sasaki and Hiroshi Hase. Yeah. So you have Sasaki and Hawk both here, and they were the Hellraisers. Why can't you just put, like, Yasuda or someone else with the Steiners? Yeah, I could see that. That way, Hawk can probably do about the same amount of work, but it'll be part of a six-man match. Yeah. Don't be wrong, as we'll discuss, I like the tag match we get, but... I could see you easily just sort of play devil's advocate and just let's try this instead. That is probably the best place to put him. Put him with a guy he's worked with yeah. extensively. As we note from, I believe, Starcade 1990, we get a World Warriors Steiners match on that show. Yeah. Where's 89? Hold on. I'm, I'm, uh, 89. I'm, 89. Yeah. yeah. I, I, sorry. They have two tournament shows in a row. Yes. So understandably. <laughs> and with a lot of overlap, Steiners are in both of them. 89, we have two different tournaments, mm-hmm. one of which is a tag tournament. Yes. 90, we have a lengthy tag tournament. Yeah. Then we get to 91, and it's the first Battle Bowl show. Mm-hmm. So it's, again, a whole crap ton of tag matches. Yeah. For someone that likes tag wrestling, but in smaller doses, that was not the most fun run of Starcades. No, for sure. <laughs> absolutely. Warhawk would return to WCW in later 95. And then, of course, he come back in 96 with his partner, Robert Animal. I think they would debut, for the first time, the blue shoulder pads. Because it's like red, like red everywhere the time I ever yeah. saw Until WCW, when they come in for a run that's definitely hit or miss based off of uh, Slam Re 96. Yeah. It does at least involve one of the better Lex Luger moments. With oh, for him, sure. Uh, challenging them to a Chicago street fight and then immediately turning to Sting and saying, what's a Chicago street fight? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, Suda himself would actually win the IWGP title as well. Oh, cool. In 2002. All right. So, several years after this, he would win it. I mean, it makes sense. Still definitely need more, ex- yes. more experience. There's a caveat to his win, however. So, there's a period of time, starting in the early 2000s with New Japan, with Inoki running. At this point, Inoki's retired. Inoki loves MMA. 
So if you could present yourself with a legit MMA background, your spot on the card would change dramatically. Okay. Which is a double-edged sword because there were wrestlers that they would do a match like that. He'd push them out the card, sometimes give them the title, in fact. A couple of times it happened. But then once they lose a match, like an actual legit shoot fight, he then either took the title from them completely, like he did with Bob Sapp, Poor Bob Sapp loses a different fight somewhere else and stripped the IWT, <laughs> IWGP title. Like, what? How does that make any sense? But yeah, Yusuda was one of the guys that he went and did some MMA. Obviously, given his size and his experience, I could see that working out well. Mm-hmm. And it did. So he, he won a couple of fights in a row. Big impressive. So he got to win the title. Well, good for him that he eventually got there, though. That's, oh, yeah. Looking at this early in his career, you can tell that he's keeping to what he knows how to do. But like I said earlier, he clearly knows how to do it quite well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can picture him becoming a very good performer, mm. given a little more uh, seasoning. Yeah, absolutely. Our seventh match is the Steiner brothers, Rick and Scott, versus Hiroshi Hase and Kensuke Sasaki. Referee for this one, again, is Tiger Hattori. And this is day two, match seven. So there's surprisingly little drama that I've been able to find stories about between shooter reviews and like the Aether Ricks podcast or Dark Side of the Ring about Scott and Rick Steiner's time in North Korea. That is genuinely surprising, yeah. yeah. I feel like if this was like a tour in 1999, you hear a lot more about Scott Steiner, yes. for sure. Bischoff told the story about how they held some outdoor luncheon for them. And mind, this is a country that's been through a 15 to 20 year famine. Yeah. Here's these big, beefy American guys, and they're giving them plates of food off a grill. So it felt really great if you live there. Yeah. <laughs> this is where all the food is going, you know? Um, so apparently, they were grilling up food. They gave Scott some chicken. He did not like it and threw it down on the ground. Which, uh. in any culture, is, is disrespectful, but especially. Certain in Asia, they are not fans of that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And again, the 15-20 year famine not helping the situation. Yes, yeah. Thankfully, as far as I can tell, there's no other stories with that happening. It's just him doing that, everyone going, ah, we just got out of here for a while. Yeah, I'm kind of kind of surprised he didn't end up visiting the same room that uh, Mr. Norton went to for a bit. Yeah, <laughs> I'm surprised myself. Norton, Norton just says something mean about their country to his wife. <laughs> yeah, right. Steiner's actually chucking their food on the ground. That seems like that would get a stronger reaction. Yeah. The Steiners come out in their University of Michigan jackets. As you pointed out, the theme were dubbed in post. Mm-hmm. I kind of wish they were played there because the mental image of the North Korean leaders sitting there trying to look official and authoritative, well, Steiner is just blaring. <laughs> that makes me chuckle for some reason. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> it is notable, of course, that the Steiners are actually not here representing WCW, as at this time they're working for New Japan. They would rejoin WCW in 1996. Mm-hmm. Hiroshi Hase and Kensuke Sasaki come out wearing t-shirts, and for some reason, the image of Tito Santana and Rick Martel as Strikeforce came to my mind as they jogged to the ring. <laughs> I can kind of see that. By the way, this has nothing to do with anything, Okay. but a weird factoid I came across while looking up what the dang Santana Martel team was actually called. Mm-hmm. When he was in Georgia Championship Wrestling, Tito Santana apparently went by Richard Blood. Mm-hmm. If that sounds familiar, it's because that's Ricky the Dragon Steamboat's real name. Yes which he switched away from because Booker Eddie Graham thought it was a better name for a heel than a face, which I agree. Agreed, yes. It's just interesting that it did see use, albeit in a totally different promotion and by a totally different wrestler. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on. Bischoff notes that Hase and Sasaki are very popular in Japan, and Ishikawa says something. I definitely heard Parliament and Election in there, but the rest is drowned out by the music. Mm-hmm. 
with the microphone they've given him, though Ishikawa could be drowned out by a passing housefly. Yes. I assume that he was bringing up the fact that Hiroshi Hase was actually elected into parliamentary office in Japan shortly after this show, though before it aired for Americans, in July 1995. He was actually the second wrestler to accomplish that, after Antonio Inoki, who we'll see later. That explains the rock and mustache. Voters love the stash. Oh, 100%. (laughs) At this point, by the way, the commentators have decided to just admit that they're recording in post after seeing me to go back and forth all night. Yeah. Tanae notes that these teams have had a long rivalry, bringing up a match from the first WCW New Japan Super Show in 1991. Bischoff segues that into talking about a Japan show that they did after this show and praises Kensuke Sasaki's mother's cooking. Yes. Apparently, his family owns a restaurant, and it's very good. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. Hishikawa says that it's very popular with American wrestlers, and I think says something about them calling her Mama-san. <laughs> yes, that is correct, yes. <laughs> it's a cute moment, overall. Yeah, for sure. Hase and Scott start us off, and Scott out-wrestles him, presses him overhead, and throws him out over the ropes onto a ring attendant. Actually, you know a lot of the ring attendants are actually other wrestlers. Yes. Yeah, I... their, na- their names are embroidered on their jackets. Oh, okay. The Steiners double-team Sasaki, and he rolls out two, leaving them doing their traditional pose in the center of the ring. Ishikawa says the North Koreans will think they're a couple of crazy Americans in audible continuation. (laughs) (laughs) Tanae talks up Hase's Olympic history. He wrestled at the 1984 Olympics in L.A. Mm -hmm. Back in, Hase hits a nice spinning heel kick to Scott's face and a good drop kick, but Scott fires back with a rapid suplex and a -a tilt-a-whirl slam, then tags Rick as Hase tags Sasaki. Sasaki, no-sells, a Steiner line. Mm -hmm. Twice. He ducks a third and sidekicks Rick down. I have never seen somebody get to no-sell Rick Steiner. Bischoff doesn't mention it, though, as he's too busy talking about Hase being in politics. Sasaki and Rick trade a German suplex and belly-to-belly suplex, respectively, and Sasaki hits a power slam. Tanae brings up Sasaki's marriage to Akira Hokuto and says they were actually introduced at this very event. Famously, Sasaki proposed after one date. Yes. Love at first sight can happen, man. <laughs> Even in North Korea, I guess. <laughs> I guess so. Bischoff is thrilled for them. It's a really cute moment. Yeah. Tag to Hase, and he does not get to no sell a Steiner line. No. It gets to. Rick drives him to the turnbuckle and tags Scott, who hits a massive belly-to-belly suplex for one as Sasaki breaks. Scott punts Hase in the face a few times. He's in politics, dude. Lay off the face. Mm-hmm. Hase counters with a dropkick, but Scott brilliantly grabs his leg and drags him across the ring to prevent a tag. Mm-hmm. It was flashing back to Anderson's tag matches there. Oh, yeah. Tag to Rick, who hits one of the scariest German suplexes I have ever seen. <laughs> Hase nearly lands right on his head. Yeah, it's like the flipping cell of it where you yeah. pull over. He, he like tries to do the flipping cell, but he doesn't get all the way over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, oh, geez. I think on the show we were watching it, you heard me make like a <laughs> noise. Yeah, that's, that's, that's so. Is, yeah. It gets two as Sasaki breaks. Rick and Scott trade off decimating Hase. A Scott overhead belly to belly is almost as scary, and they keep hitting him in the face before a double underhook powerbomb by Scott for two and a half. Hase finally dodges a Steiner line from Rick, and he hits a back suplex that almost turns into a rock bottom, then tags Sasaki, who runs wild on both Steiners with dropkicks and slams, until Scott punches him in the crotch. Scott, come on, dude just fell in love. Yeah. (laughs) 
Sasaki gets revenge, clotheslining both down and lifting Rick for a top rope dive from Hase. Hase does a giant swing, and Tanae says to count the rotations. So I did. 13. Mm-hmm. Bischoff says that 44 is his record, so this was more of a warm-up. Nicely, though, Rick is so dizzy that he can't find his corner. But he can manage a German suplex that does appear to land Hase right on the noggin this time. Yeah, it does. Tag to Scott, and he gets one off a pump handle slam as Sasaki saves. So Rick takes Sasaki outside to brawl, and the camera watches them as Scott hits what looks like it would be the Steiner screwdriver on Hase off camera yeah. for the three count and the win. Seriously? You cut away from the Steiner screwdriver to show some punching? We've seen a lot of boneheaded WCW production moves, but this takes the cake. Mm-hmm. The Steiners pose in victory, and Sasaki comes over to help Hase up because, you know, Steiner screwdriver. He's eventually able to take a bow, and we don't even get a replay. <laughs> Thoughts on this one? Clearly the real loser here is poor Hiroshi Hase. Yes. Especially his face. Oh, God. They don't make it clear a commentary which would really be helpful. I think the idea is the Steiners are he definitely heals here. I, they seem to be acting like it at yeah. several points. They're yeah. playing they're playing it like that with like you talking mentioned the Anderson, you know, with the way they're being punching the guy and you know, down below and all that. They they don't break on the ropes a few times too. True, with, yeah. yeah. It's nice that they made that clear on commentary because you don't necessarily think of the Steiners, especially at this point, as heels. Right, yeah. They're just hey, there's Steiners, they wrestling through People run and beat the crap out of them. Bischoff does have several comments about their like their emotions getting the better of them and that yeah. sort of thing. It's probably a case where you know he's like, when we bring these guys in, they're probably going to be faces again. Right. So don't build up too much of their mm-hmm. heel work, most likely. But yeah, I can see that. It hurts the match a little. I think just the commentary didn't make it clear enough how you're supposed to yeah. feel, and there's so little crowd reaction to the theme of the show. Yes, that it's it's hard to get the right vibe from them. Suzaki doesn't get to do a whole lot here, does he, really? He doesn't. He always looks good when he's in yeah. there, though. And he's, it's not, he's not new. It's not like it's the Yasuda situation where they bring him over that. So it's weird he's been so little time in the ring. Yeah. I think Abe's in this match is a basically one-sided beatdown of poor Roshi Hatsune. <laughs> yes. And then, <laughs> then they sort of fight to the outside and the camera misses the finish. Yeah. One of the worst production mistakes we've seen, I, I yeah. can reiterate. Exactly. I think if his match was a little more even, and there's little things like, like the commenter making the characterization more clear and having actual crowd reaction, this would be a really, really good match. For me, it falls a little bit short as an overall package because of that, but it's enjoyable to watch. Nothing else from the sheer terror of it, of watching this poor guy get thrown around and beaten up. <laughs> True. It's a morbid appeal to it, but nothing else. <laughs> Yeah, I thought this was a great tag match. It's, as you'd expect from this era, Steiners, mm-hmm. especially with two performers as good as Sasaki and Hase. I have not seen the latter before, and he is amazing. Maybe a little too eager to get dumped repeatedly on his head, mm-hmm. especially for a guy with a political career ahead of him. But he's very agile and still resilient. He feels able to go toe-to-toe with the Steiners, despite being visibly smaller than them. Mm-hmm. Sasaki, of course, just gets in their faces and matches them blow-to-blow, as he's an equally big, muscly guy. He gets to manhandle Rick at points in ways that I'm not sure I've ever seen happen, which was really cool. Mm-hmm. Rick and Scott, of course, are their usual suplex-happy selves, as impressive as always. I thought this had a good flow and a sense of escalation through the match. Um, for me, I wasn't bothered as much, I don't think, by Hase being in there so much, because I think he did a good job of playing the face and peril role. Right. 
there's one point I remember he's uh, in a front face lock by one of the Steiners and he is actually managing to slowly push him a- across the ring. And I really was genuinely pulling from like, get there, get there, get there. Yeah. So I really enjoyed it. I thought it escalated nicely throughout the match. And it was a joy to watch if a tad scary at times. Seriously, Hase, tuck your head. <laughs> yeah, I think for me, just, yeah, there's not enough of his partner in there. So mm-hmm. it just, it's a little too one sided as a whole. But yeah, no, I'm not just like disagreeing with you as a general, though. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, these Steiners would first go to ECW after this, which is one people almost never talk about. Mm hmm. And obviously, they would then return to WCW, where they would spend the rest of the time of the company. Uh, as I mentioned, Hase was elected to the Diet in 1985. He kind of hung around politics for a while after this. He has a pretty long career in yeah. it. Yeah. He kind of, it's weird, because he'll pop in and out of wrestling, but also politician, which is, can't wait to do that in America. Yeah, that would can't be... Can't be in, like, the house, but then, like, go do an indie show somewhere. That would be interesting, yeah. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> in fact, his last appointment position I looked up was he was the... Minister of Education, Culture, Sports, Science, and Technology. He was appointed in late 2015 and served through mid-2016. Okay. Hey, I mean, congratulations to the guy on a lengthy career on both fronts. Yeah. He's appointed by the now-absent Shinzo Abe. Yes. Some more cross-connections for you here. 1997, Tsuki Sasaki would reach arguably the pinnacle of his career, where he would win the IWDP Championship. He won it from Hashimoto. Okay. He did multiple reigns. I think he has four or five total uh, across multiple years. Anciently, the last time he lost the title was 2001 to Scott Norton. Well, there you go. <laughs> Seeing the, the entire IWGP title picture for the next several years on this show, it looks yes, like. <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> That's neat. Yeah. We cut to Bischoff, Tanay, and Ishikawa. Bischoff says the Steiners are trying to make their way into WCW, and Tanay goes over some of the variety we've seen, then gets Ishikawa's thoughts on the flair Inoki match. Ishikawa says that Flair has no chance because Inoki was trained by Ricky Dozen, who was from North Korea. Mm-hmm. It's perhaps more accurate to say he was from what would become North Korea, correct? as he was born Kim Sin-Rak in 1924, before the Korea split, and indeed when they were actually under Japanese rule. Yes. He left for Japan in 1939, becoming a sumo wrestler, where he got the name Ricky Dozan, before becoming a pro wrestler in 1951. Enormously successful and popular, he even got to beat Luthez for the NWA International Heavyweight title, and was the founder of the first Japanese pro wrestling promotion, the Japan Pro Wrestling Alliance, Mm -hmm. JWA, oddly they don't include the P. (laughs) Why not? Sadly, he died after being stabbed in a bar fight with a Yakuza, Katsushi Murata. Reportedly, the wound was survivable, but after surgery, he ignored doctor's orders and drank alcohol heavily, worsening his condition and leading to his death. He was an incredibly important figure to the Japanese pro wrestling scene, becoming a massive star and training several Japanese wrestling legends, including, most notably for tonight, Antonio Inoki. Yes. Also worth noting, he trained Giant Baba. Yes. They would eventually leave the company that he founded with them underneath him and form All Japan and New Japan, respectively. There you go. So he's basically the genesis of the entire Japanese pro wrestling scene. Pretty much, yeah. Weirdly, Bischoff goes back to kind of talking like the match is upcoming rather than something that already happened as he talks about Flair's chances. A second later, he's back to talking about things in past tense again as we see shots of Inoki and Flair getting ready for the match backstage in the arena. 
Inoki works out doing headstand neck bends against the arena wall, which looks intense. (laughs) Mm, Yes. Flair, wandering through a mostly empty backstage area with his glittery robe over his arm, is kind of funny to watch. Yes. As we see shots of Flair and Inoki in front of their respective flags, Flair's theme hits, and they nicely time a dramatic shot of the two of them for the big note in the opening bars of Flair's theme. And when it hits the dun-dun, it it shows the two of them facing off, which is kind of neat. So our final match is The Nature Boy, Ric Flair, versus Antonio Inoki, with Antonio Inoki's chin. Seriously, it's like Leno's. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Referee for this one is, again, Tiger Hattori. This is Day 2, the main event, Match 8. There's one story that's told about the trip to North Korea. Curiously, it's never told, like, firsthand. Okay. It never told as, I said this and someone else did this. It's always told third-hand. It's like someone heard them say this and saw the reaction. I think Bischoff tells the story, and other people, other people that were around to tell the story tell this. Supposedly, at some point during one of the big dinners, they're bragging about how great North Korea is and how they're more dominant than America. Muhammad Ali supposedly pops in saying, no wonder we blank and hate these guys. <laughs> yes. Twitter Ric Flair sort of nods approvingly, but doesn't say anything. And there appears to be no reprisal towards Ali, maybe because of his level of celebrity at that point in notoriety. Um, Bischoff at one point does mention that at this point, Ali, who was obviously suffering from Parkinson's, mm. had actually a great deal of difficulty holding conversation at a louder volume, mm. but he could be perfectly well heard when he was whispering. Oh, okay. So if he was leaning over like to Rick or something oh, like that, okay. they might just not have heard him, basically. That's right. Okay. Yeah, because it's weird because I've never seen that story told by Ric Flair. Oh, okay. And obviously, I've never seen Ali tell that story. It's people that are around saying that this is what happened. <laughs> this is technically part of Inoki's retirement tour. Yeah. He announced in 1994 he was planning to retire from pro wrestling, which would happen in 1998. All right, well. Planning ahead. Yeah, you know, you know there's, there's programs over here where you, you say, you know, I'll retire in five years. Like the Jay Leno situation where he say, leave the show after the contact ran up? Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Back to Jay Leno, how'd that work out? There we go. <laughs> that was unplanned. Flair comes out in a glittery purple and silver robe as Bischoff builds up Inoki's work to make this event happen. Inoki is out next in a white robe with kanji on the back, surrounded by a crowd of people. There's a bunch of wrestlers shielding him as he strides through a huge crowd with everybody snapping pictures with big old cameras. Ishikawa praises Inoki for his attempts to use pro wrestling as a means of promoting peace. The commentary gets seriously awkward at this point, mm-hmm. as they try to talk in past tense, but also future tense. You know, things like, this was Flair's first match back. We'll see if ring rust matters. Yes. You know, it's just, it just feels strange how much they're, like, switching back and forth. Yeah. And, like, sometimes acknowledging their recording in posts and sometimes talking like, oh, this is happening right now in yeah. front of our eyes. Bishop, at some point, like, talks like he's going to spoil the main event. And he simply says, like, well, I, well, I don't want to spoil what's going to happen later. So yeah. On those lines, like, uh, okay. It's just like, pick one. Yeah, exactly. Inoki comes out ahead on counter-wrestling as Flair has to use the ropes to break an armbar. Flair yells at the ref. Flair rolls Inoki into an armbar himself. It's almost a cross armbreaker, but he doesn't keep the feet across the chest. Mm -hmm. Inoki boots Flair hard in the head to break, which probably made Flair regret not putting on an actual cross armbreaker. Yeah. And they glare at each other, Flair giving an aggressive woo. (laughs) 
the crowd actually makes some noise for the first time on the show. Yes. Inoki's shoulder block, and Flair rolls out to cool down. Back in, Flair immediately kicks Inoki on a test of strength. Bischoff builds up Inoki's physical condition, saying that he'd tried to join Inoki for a jog, but had to bow out after 25 minutes, unable to keep up. (laughs) Flair works Inoki's arm, and he rolls out, slapping the apron in frustration, but Flair snaps his neck across the ropes as he tries to get in, then rams him into the post a couple times. Ishikawa, actually audible for once, notes that North Korean state TV had showed days of Ric Flair matches in the lead-up to this so the audience would know what to expect. That's one of the more benign uses of state TV, at least. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Inoki reels outside the ring near other New Japan wrestlers, and Hiroshi Hase encourages him. I wonder if that ended up in either one's political ads, or yeah. both. <laughs> I feel like Hase probably wouldn't want to include that in his ads if he's running I don't know. Flair suplexes Inoki in for four two-counts. Bischoff constantly switches back and forth between talking like this is live and talking about it happening months prior. It's really distracting. It's very distracting, yes. Flair works Inoki's leg with a shin breaker, leg hold, and more, though he does slip in an STF at one point, which Bischoff notes is rare for him. Mm-hmm. Bischoff praises Flair's skill on the way to praising Hogan, who beat him. Seriously, Bischoff, Hogan is not even here. <laughs> He's not going to watch the show, buddy. No, I don't think he cares. No. Figure four by Flair, and Inoki howls in pain, but Flair prevents him from reaching the ropes. So, Inoki muscles Flair's leg off of his own, able to disentangle himself, and gets to the ropes. I'm not actually sure if I've ever seen that counter completed before. I know we've seen people try and do the yeah. leg shove, but I don't know that I've ever seen someone get to actually do mm. it. Yeah, I'm not sure on that either. It was a cool difference from the norm. Yeah. Speaking of differences from the norm, or not at all, Flair tries the figure four again, and Inoki rolls him up for two. Yeah. He then backslides him for two as well. Inoki wins some slugfests and gets a big smile on his face. At least he's having fun. Flair flops, and Inoki flings him to the turnbuckle for a Flair flip, sending him to the floor. Back in, Flair begs for mercy, and the ref gets in Inoki's way, so Flair sneaks a kick around the ref. Flair goes up top, but Flair Karma holds true even in North Korea. <laughs> Inoki gets two and three quarters and a two off of a drop kick, but Flair wins a slugfest and gets two counts with an elbow drop and a big stalling suplex. Flair tries a slam, but Inoki somehow manages to counter that with a head scissors in a cool spot, then hits a cartwheel kick, a top rope knee drop, and his enziguri, or jump back leg round kick per Bischoff, for the three count and the win. Ishikawa says he told Bischoff that would happen. Inoki gets flowers from someone outside and waves to the crowd. Bischoff says he's not making excuses for Flair and proceeds to make like a dozen excuses from ring rust to jet lag. Yes. (laughs) Flair recovers and walks up to Inoki aggressively, but ultimately extends a hand and they shake hands. See, peace can come from wrestling. There you go. (laughs) Thoughts on this one? It's a, I thought it was a good match. Um, obviously, it's historically important. I think it's the only time these two ever actually have a match. I'm pretty sure that's the case, yeah. Yeah. Which is kind of bonkers to think about it. Yeah, I mean, that they really seems like something that should have happened more than once, right? Yeah. Especially, I know there's a point where Inoki comes over to WCW and actually has a match, but I think it's like Steve Regal, right? Correct, yes. He wrestled the Clash of Champions, yeah. We, we, get, we got Antonio Inoki for one match. Who should we have him face? Regal, I guess? Not, not Flair? Not... Yeah. Don't get me wrong, I really love Regal. Sure, of course. And he deserves an honor, but it just feels strange that you're like, the first 
and apparently only Inoki match in WCW, and it's it's not Ric Flair or, or one of the right. world champion level guys at the time. It's the same way they brought in Mil Mascaras to fight Cactus Jack. Right, yeah. You're like, huh, okay, sure. <laughs> yeah, so it's kind of crazy to think that this match didn't happen more often. Like, once a year for a while, you think something like this happened, but yeah. All things considered, they have really good chemistry. Yeah. Flair is willing to, as always, play heel Flair and work, you know, underneath, constantly cut off the face and everything. Anuki does a good job of sort of showing his sort of confidence at first, then getting more upset as the match goes on. Mm-hmm. The few good points they make in commentary is not confusing, which Tencent happens in. Talk about how Anuki doesn't normally throw punches. Right. The fact that Flair has got him worked up is a good. Yeah, he's really riled up, and they point that out really nicely. Yeah, exactly. You haven't seen a lot of Anoki stuff, because there's just not a lot of stuff here in America. So I don't have, like, a baseline necessarily to judge Anoki matches, so I can't say, like, this is a really good Anoki match, or an average Anoki match, or just, you know, a bad one, for all I know. I will say, and it's it's kind of built in, so Anoki's finish he's been using for, like, 20-plus years at this point. Right is the Enziguri kick, and I will not call it what Bishop calls it. <laughs> it's a good move, but we had a couple people do that move on the show, and it's not a finish for them. Right, yeah. On top of that, if you look at the way that the finish happens, he does a like rolling flip kick, which is pretty cool, mm-hmm. knocking Flair down, goes to the top rope, knee drops the back of his head, then picks him back up, kicking him in the back of the head a third time. A little bit complicated, maybe. Yeah. He does at least do it really fast, though. No, that's true, yeah. Yeah, it's it's kind of the same thing as like what eventually happens to the DDT. That's like for Jake Roberts, that's the absolute death move. Like no one kicks out of the DDT. Yeah, but then it becomes this like transitional move after a few years. Mm-hmm. So it has a similar feeling, I think, watching the Enziguri for Inoki as if you'd seen like Jake Roberts do the DDT on a show where that's used as a transition move by like everybody. Yeah, and just then suddenly it's like, wait, that's that's a killer move now. What? Yeah. <laughs> If I was in that situation and my move was like that was suddenly just a move everyone did and didn't necessarily have that much impact, I would like try to make it more effective. Like I would build up a match or like go for it early and have them like duck and you know like roll out the ring like whoa you know save me with the kick you know mm-hmm. have people really build up that move remind people it's if- yeah exactly yeah I can see that and maybe tell people not to do that move if I'm on the if I'm on the show especially when it's your show that you set up you'd think he could tell people just don't do insecurities it's my thing <laughs> yeah exactly i i am literally part of the government at this point <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah <laughs> i thought noki here did a good job sort of playing the face to rick flair's mm-hmm. heel which he is probably pretty easy even in autopilot mode flair is really good as a heel so yeah yeah that's a good match yeah i thought it was a very very solid match it does feel a bit tame at first after some of the amazing action we've seen earlier in the show, mm-hmm. but the two really get into it and it builds massively in intensity as it goes. It has exactly the feel it needs. It's a slower opening because the two are both legends and know, know of the other's skill, so they're tentative approaching at first, mm-hmm. feeling each other out. But then it leads to more aggression as they each get more confident and more frustrated with the other's escapes. And as you pointed out, as Anoki gets annoyed by Flair's dirty tricks. Mm-hmm. There's some surprising moves from both of them, like a few unusual holds from Flair and Anoki's nice array of counters and kicks, and that kept me into this quite a bit. Yeah. It felt like a Flair match, but a different sort of Flair match at times that mixed in things that I hadn't really seen from him before, like the uh, STF and that almost cross-arm breaker thing. Yeah, absolutely. So it's comfortable, but different, I guess? Yeah. 
it was a really enjoyable match, and Inoki seemed to be having quite a good time with it as well, so good for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a match that's good enough that I'm shocked that it's their only one. Yeah. Not just in terms of I would have liked to see more of them, but in terms of this feels like a polished match between two guys that have fought each other before, right? Yeah, like, yeah it does. It does, yeah. We know each other's spots were able to counter them and everything. Right. Mm-hmm. You normally get that from two guys that have had like this long feud, but... As far as I can tell, there's never been a Flair and Oki match. So I think that's a testament to how good these guys are. Yes. That they can have a, we've had a long feud match when it's their first encounter. Yeah. (laughs) I hadn't thought of it that way until you were mentioning that, but it it really is an interesting atmosphere to it. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to mention the buildup. Anoki had a few, quite a few scandals hanging around his deck. So he would not win a re-election in July '95, the same time that Hase did win an election, which might have been a little awkward. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe a bit. How, how'd you do, boss? Great. How'd you do? <laughs> Great. Uh, he would actually run again for office in 2013, where he served another term. The thing with Anoki, especially later in there, is that, better or for worse, he's committed to this, I'm going to bridge yeah. between Japan and North Korea. Problem is, he stopped really doing it when he's supposed to be and when he's allowed to make trips. Yeah. He would just, oh, by the way, I'm going to Korea this weekend. You're like, wait, what? No, 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 no. What are you doing? Yeah, take some unauthorized ones. I understand he ends up suspended from the legislature fairly soon after he gets elected in 2013, even. Correct. Yeah. So it's, like I said, credit credit to do, he's committed to this idea, but at a certain point it hurt him because he wasn't doing it the right way. Makes you wonder if it's a mix of him just being stubborn about the whole thing. At least as far as taking trips when he's not supposed to. Yeah. Like, you're not going to tell Anoki when he can't take a trip. Anoki will go when he feels like it. Yeah. Sticks out that big old chin and says, I will do what I want. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one little show I want to add, so that's kind of interesting. So we have the future Sunny Ono doing sort of commentary mm-hmm. uh, throughout the show. What little you'll, you'll make out. I think it's interesting to note how many people on this show will later be managed by him on WCW television. And pay-per-view. Okay. We have Kazuki Sasaki, obviously, mm-hmm. as part of Starcade 95. Yep. Yuji Nagata, when he comes in 97, is managed mm-hmm. by Sunny Ono. Masahiro Chono, also managed by him. Okay. Both on 95, and I leave later as well. And you also have the duo of Hiro Hokuto, yep. managed by him, and Bolokano in the tag match work together. Okay. Quite a lot of uh, future Sunny Ono clients. Yes. <laughs> All from this neat guy who chimes in every few minutes, but a little bit of a line. That you yes, come- yeah. Yeah. By the way, I think I think it is noteworthy. I'm pretty sure that uh, Kazuo Sunny Ono is his actual name, oh. and Ishikawa is the fictional name. Ah, I wonder why. I wonder like, why why I'd pick that a fictional last name. Of that. I don't know. Yeah. No, yeah. No, May, I mean, it's possible that they had a view that they might eventually use him as this other character, mm. and so they maybe weren't sure that they wanted to say anything else about the character uh, at this point. Maybe yeah. I don't know. To be fair, if you take his sunglasses off, it's somehow a different person to so many people. Yes. Like, you show them person on the side of the picture, like, oh, that's the same guy, isn't he's, it? He's like Superman. Exactly. <laughs> Inoki goes around shaking hands with people around the ring, and Bischoff signs off, leaving us with a few more shots of the opening ceremony for the show. And Collision in Korea is done. So, uh, overall thoughts on Collision in Korea. So, as far as action goes, it's a really good show. Um, There's a mix of matches that are, to be fair, a bit short, and some that are quite good. I don't think there's really any bad matches on the show. No. Maybe you can argue the, but basically the squash match with the Shida and 
Hawk is maybe the worst, but even then, I got some enjoyment out of it still. I wouldn't call it bad at all. No, just, no. just maybe a little underwhelming. No, sure, yeah. So it's nice to have a show where I'm, I can't go, oh, well, this is clearly the worst match in the show, no question. Mm. You know? That said, you have to deal with the awkwardness of the whole situation, the whole North Korea trip, all the stories you hear about how bad things were, whether it was the government or people apparently plotting murders while they're there. Yes. Um, <laughs> you have to the fact that the crowd is only really awake for like one and a half matches. There's brief bits in early matches yeah. where you hear them, but... Or rather, has probably been ordered to cheer for a particular oh, person. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know what we didn't mention yet, I'm taking it from your summary, is that they awkwardly dub over the other commentary for the show. Yes. I'd forgotten to mention that across. Yeah, you can hear the the Japanese commentary. Yes. That they appear to have not recorded on a separate audio track, which Correct. seems like something that would have been a good idea. Yeah, so it seems like WCW was given the video and audio track combined, rather than giving, as you said, giving separate audio tracks and video tracks. So when they did, they just kind of talk over the audio there. So when they no talking here... Yeah, you can constantly hear this Japanese dialogue underneath the English commentary, and it... It never gets loud enough to be too distracting, except when Ishikawa is talking and you can't hear him anyway. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but it's always a little bit of a, like, wait, did someone else say something? <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. But yeah, it, overall, it's a strong show. You just have to ignore the sort of weird aspects of all the surrounding environments. The fact that the crowd, willing or otherwise, has almost no reaction for anything on the show until yeah. the end. Considering that there's over 150,000 people there. You would have thought there'd be more crowd noise, even just incidentally. Yeah. I'm not a diplomatic expert, but from that context, I would call this show a lot of risk for little to no gain. And indeed, for something of a loss, given that it gave the North Korean government a lot of useful propaganda footage of American executives and Japanese dignitaries paying homage to North Korea's founder and monuments that were set up specifically to push an alternate version of history where America was the absolute evil. Maybe if there'd been a greater chance of actually making some progress on diplomatic issues, a risk like this might have been taken, but it should only have been done with the participation of the United States government, which Bischoff admits he knew wouldn't allow it. So, bad idea. Right. If we can separate from that aspect of it, though, and that is a huge thing to set to the side. For sure, yeah. Let's talk about this as a wrestling show. The matches were almost universally good to great. Mm -hmm. Starting matches felt a little short or ended too suddenly, but like I said, only Hawk's match against Yasuda was maybe a little underwhelming for this show. Don't tell John I said that. No. Otherwise, there were a ton of fun matches, especially the tag matches. Shocking for me, I know. Mm -hmm. So far as the wrestling goes, it was terrific and easy to enjoy. It was also nice, like with Starcade 95, to not really have to worry much about the storylines and just get to enjoy some strong athletic performances. Yeah. Agreed. But as a show, it is very awkward. There's a weird feel to the entire night, a strange atmosphere that just kept throwing me off. I had to focus in consciously on the matches more than usual to stay into things. I think it always would have felt like that to some extent, but the poor production quality definitely didn't help. I'm not going to fault the show itself for the way this version kind of looked like it had been filmed through a spear of jelly or something, mm. or how blurry everything was, as I'm fairly sure that resulted from whatever bootleg video was used by whatever EP network was before this was picked up by Bischoff's 83 Weeks and put on YouTube. I doubt it originally looked like that. No, <laughs> it's a copy of a copy of a copy, Yeah, at least, yeah. 
I will, though, fault the actual show for an array of poor camera work, bad cuts, shots from far too close to see anything clearly, crappy audio, lingering original commentary track, as you pointed out, that distracted from the overdub commentary, and not giving Kazuo Ishikawa a working microphone. <laughs> Aside from the completely inaudible member, the commentary was okay. Tanay was a great choice for this as he came prepared with an array of factoids about all the Japanese wrestlers to familiarize the American audience with performers that they might not have seen before. Bischoff did well enough overall and was actually a little more likable than he often is, as he shared some fun stories about his time with some of the Japanese performers as well. And Ishikawa barely spoke, and when he did, you could hear about every fourth word, so he added very little. He did get a couple good lines in, at least. They did a decent job, but didn't really manage to make an event like this have the gravitas that it should have. They were recording in post, and it felt like they were recording in post. It's like, on a lot of the shows, the commentators themselves are kind of getting into it and getting excited by it. You don't really feel that on this show, because they're aware they're watching a recording. Yeah. They don't get to be charged up by the crowd, or get, get any of the benefit that you get from recording during a live performance. So I, I think that comes through in, in their commentary. Yeah. It feels more casual, which can be good, but just kind of, it doesn't feel as energetic. You know what helped the show? Give, especially given that it's all pre-taped and then done later anyways. Get Bobby Heenan on there in yeah. place of Ishikawa. Honestly, you, you give this to the Tony Bobby Dusty team, they would get enough energy just from working with each other. Yeah. I think that that would be pretty hilarious. Agreed, yes. <laughs> All told, though, I did actually enjoy watching Collision in Korea, and I'm glad I got the chance to do it. It was a very unique show, and exposed me to some performers I'd not gotten the opportunity to watch and may never get the opportunity to watch again, mm-hmm. at least in WCW stuff. I do recommend checking it out. You'll get to see a show that's not quite like anything else out there, but that still manages to entertain you. Mm-hmm. One thing I think would have been a better way to do this whole thing in general, obviously, it would have been agreed upon by North Koreans because they wanted the spotlight of everyone coming to them mm-hmm. to make peace. But if you could have found a neutral area, mm-hmm. a Taiwan, for instance, send North Korean wrestlers there if there if there were some available. Assumably there were all the same people there and have a neutral ground show. Find a place literally between Japan and North Korea yeah. somehow. Something something where it definitely would have been safer for our, yeah. for all concerned. Let's put it that way. But yeah, I, I think. That would have been potentially a better thing. Like you said, I'm not sure what the North Korean element of the show would look like in that case. Mm. I'm not sure that they have pro wrestling at all. Yeah. But presumably you might have some amateur wrestlers that Inoki or somebody could teach the basics of pro wrestling real right. quick. Either way, you could still do a let's talk about peace with North Korea and unity situation. Yeah. Without actually being in one of the most dangerous countries for Americans to visit. Yes. <laughs> or most people to visit. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's not just about us. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's a lot about us, <laughs> to be fair. Match of the night and MVP, then. So, Al, your match of the night. Uh, all good action throughout the show, uh, for the most part. I would say the one that really blew me away, especially in rewatch, I could really look into it more, as the Hokuto Nakano versus Toyota Yoshida match. As we mentioned, really hard-hitting, really fast-paced, really well put together. It's a shame that it's shorter than it actually is. If they give him like five, ten more minutes, I think they made a really, really good match. Mm-hmm. But it's a great sub-ten minute match, especially with the fact that they squeeze in there. Yeah, it's it's amazing how much 
action they put in in that mm-hmm. short amount of time without ever feeling like they're devaluing any moves. Yeah. Because I've seen other fast matches where it feels like you're getting a lot in, but like the one on, um, was it Slambury 2000 or 99? I forget the three-way tag match. Oh, 99. Yeah. That that one was still a fun match to watch, but it mm-hmm. felt like, you know, people are just getting knocked down and then getting right back up again because we got to get something else in really yeah. fast. This one didn't have that feel. Or that ladder match we have on the uh, 2000. Right. It's arcade, I believe. Yep, same thing. My turn now. We. Uh, yeah, for me, they were they were also definitely in the running. Um, the other one was Hase and Sasaki versus the Steiners. Sure. It's very close, but I'm going to go with Hase and Sasaki versus the Steiners. Okay. Both matches had amazing action, but for me, the latter just had a touch more story to it. There was a little bit more discernible tag strategy and the feeling of a longer rivalry that came through well in how the teams fought each other. I don't want to sell the women's match short at all. No, it's amazing. This one just impacted me just a touch more. Likewise, I wouldn't I wouldn't shortchange the other tag mm-hmm. match either. They're both really good, yeah. Yeah, they're both exceptional matches. There was, as we pointed out, a ton of good action on this card. Uh, MVP? So, going a little time my way, I normally do this, but it seems fitting. So, based on the performance in his match and the fact that the show literally wouldn't happen without him, my MVP is Antonio Inoki. Outside of just the fact that he put the show together and got it done through basically sheer force of will, it sounds like. Yeah. His performance was really good. It's one of the few times we'll get to really grade a Noki match mm-hmm. on anything, so I thought it was good. Yeah. I accept that reasoning because I very nearly did the same thing myself, <laughs> honestly. It's it's a very good point if you're talking about MVP. The guy without whom the show would definitely not exist is a pretty strong yeah. uh, prospect for that, pretty, right? Pretty big VP, yeah. Yeah. I am going to give this to someone who really surprised me. Uh, showing me moves I never expected from him and putting on a match I would not have expected he could manage at first glance. That is Shinya Hashimoto. Fair choice. He is one of the most agile and fast big men that I have ever seen, with a speed and ability that seems at odds with his build when you first look at him. And he also managed quite a good 20-minute match with Scott Norton that uh, left me quite impressed with both. Mm -hmm. I had never seen Hashimoto before, and he impressed me a great deal. I do have a runner-up I want to call out as well, which is Hiroshi Hase, who is amazing and very talented, but urgently needs to learn to land anywhere but his head. Agreed. Yes. (laughs) I almost gave it to him, but he kept scaring the crap out of me, and that cost him a few points, honestly. (laughs) I will say his Freddie Mercury mustache did help me a bit as well. (laughs) Just a crazy little thing called love. Yep. And that wraps up our review of Collision in Korea. If you've enjoyed listening to us tonight, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook as Let's Go to the Ring. Links will be available in the episode description. Follow us for episode announcements and other show details, and share your own thoughts about each show as we go through. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn, Verbal, or Audible. And please, if you've enjoyed this show, give us a rating or review and share the show through your favorite social media platforms to help others discover us. Many thanks to Wikipedia for attendance figures tonight, and to Gina Trujillo for our logo. Next up, our new series. Saddle up for a trip back to 1994 as WCW kicks off Spring Stampede, before it evidently got roostered at the old saloon and forgot to show up for a couple years. Oops. Will it be a rootin' tootin' good time or a pile of prairie coal? Find out next time. (laughs) 
I promise. No more Western puns. (laughs) (laughs) I make no such promises. This is Bob Moore for Alec Pridgen signing off. Good night, everybody. Happy wrestling. Then tag Samurai for a flying headbutt for two... <laughs> I didn't even do it to you. It's all, all yourself, Bob. I know, I know. It's, it's my fault entirely.